Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. We're doing some history today, which means I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina, who's a CompuBox operator and also a fellow fight history lover like myself. Eris, how you doing, man? Doing really good, bro. Um, you know, we had a fun weekend of fights, like we uh, always do. And summertime is finally hitting, which is feeling nice out here. I'm not have to like be wearing hoodies and just general coldness and shit. So yeah, I'm actually in good spirits. It's, it's starting to kind of like pick up. The weather's picking up a little bit. You know, things hopefully looking up. They're definitely looking up in boxing. Um, totally. you know, out here in the Pacific Northwest, dude, like if it's not raining, it's, you know, it's glorious. And it hasn't been raining, so we're good. But good. we're in the midst of a nice spell of boxing, like we were just saying. And this coming weekend, dude, we got Gervonta Tank Davis against Raleigh Romero. Rolando Romero should be, I mean, it's it's a funky matchup. It's definitely a funky matchup. I know a lot of people are looking forward to it for the, for what we're talking about today, the trash talk, the trash talk has just been, you know, it's, it's been a big part of the narrative. So we're Especially talking about Wally side, man, that dude can yeah. talk a lot of shit. <laughs> He's definitely been jibber jabbering for sure. And that's what we're talking about today. Some of the greatest trash talkers of all time, but real quick, that's what we're inspired by. We're, we're inspired by the tank Davis versus Raleigh Romero fight. I mean, just real quick before we get to the history, though, what do you think about that fight this weekend? It's gonna be a fun fight, man. You know, the more I watched the um, All Access show, um, did a little bit more research. Tank is my favorite active fighter to watch. Him and uh, Chocolatito, and you know, because Tank is can't miss, right? You know, you always know you're gonna get a good fight out of him. Either he's gonna knock the hell out of his opponent. He might struggle a little bit. It's always a good atmosphere. It's just a lot of fun to watch. And Romero is a guy that came on the scene recently over the past few years. He's been, you know, kind of more like an eccentric figure that no one really knows how to really make of him nor take him seriously, but he's carved, you know, a pretty decent resume for himself um, since then. Sure, he picked up one of those, you know, BS secondary WBA titles or whatever it was that they had flowing around at one point, but you know, as we've discussed before on the show and other times, if you have one of those secondary titles, no matter what, that's still going to raise your stature and you're going to get a big fight out of that. Look where Romero is now. So after the WBA decided to cut all the interim champions out or regular champions or whatever the hell was going on after they got in deep shit with um, the Mikhail Fox fight, um, Romero was one of those champions that got stripped. But all those guys that got those titles taken away were automatically installed as number one contenders. Um, Romero and Davis were scheduled to fight, what was it, this past summer? Yeah, it was. I I think I can't remember what when they exactly. Oh, no, November or whenever, whenever it was. It was around. It was last year, in any case. And, you know, Romero got caught up in a bunch of um, legal issues where he was accused of rape and some other stuff going on. But um, 
you know, that brought so he was excluded from that fight. I think that's because that's when Isaac Cruz got the fight instead, right? Wasn't he the replacement? Yep. That ended up being a hell of a fight, too. One of the best fights of 2021. And so, and that rose Cruz's stature. Look at where he's at, at now at the lightweight picture. So back to this fight. Um, Romero, since then, I guess the charges were dropped or whatever may have happened. And at that point, well, he got installed back then. Regardless of what you think of him, regardless of his controversies outside of the ring, his mouth is what really brought him here, too. I mean, he, he's a fun personality in the ring. He makes for good fights. But, you know, the guy is a major league trash talker, like big. And he's been calling out for Tank for a long time. They both, you know, fight under the Mayweather banner. So they've seen each other in the gym for a while. This is kind of something that's been brewing. They've been the same weight. And Romero's been pushing his buttons for a while. Um, the last time he appeared on Showtime when Jim Gray interviewed him after the fight, and they asked him, hey, you know, who do you want to fight next? And he was like, I want to fight Tank. He was like, I want to fight Garante Davis. I want to knock him out. Yada, yada, yada. And Gray was like, you know, do you think you're ready for that? And he was like, yeah, of course I am. And it didn't, there was no sense of, like, trepidation. It didn't seem like he was just putting on a show. He totally looked like he was serious. Yeah. He seems like he believes the trash that he, he talks totally about. Yeah. Like I said, he's a very eccentric personality. And someone, you know, it's hard to really read or whatever the way he talks. But, like, he totally believes in himself in this fight. Like, you can see it when he's not just talking. Like, he really thinks that Davis is just a small guy that he's going to be able to beat up and he's too strong for him. And, um... I think their styles are going to make for a really good fight when it comes down to it. You know, they've already been trash talking a little bit. Davis has been much more like talkative than usual. He's kind of more, you know, despite his personality and his um, stature in the sport now where he's like a major <laughs> draw and whatever, he's still kind of a reserved guy. You hear him in interviews and everything. He's kind of low key the way he talks and all that. And this fight, he's been really barking back. Like you can see it. He doesn't like, um, he doesn't like, you know, Raleigh as well. So at the pre-fight, at the press conferences that they had, they've been going back and forth already. Romero talking shit to him, Davis going back and forth. You know, you can see it's heated. This is legit. They really do not like each other. And like I said, with their styles meshing together, this is going to make for a fun-ass fight. Like, it's can't miss. It's definitely not going to go to the distance. And with it being at the Barclays Center, I can tell you that's going to be an incredible atmosphere. Yeah, as far as the Barclays, <clears throat> reports, reports are coming in that, that uh, the fight is going to be breaking some attendance records for Barclays, which for boxing, right? yeah, for boxing, yeah. which is which reinforces. I, I will. I want to talk about the Raleigh Romero stuff in a second, and I I won't get too far into it, but I do want to say that I think that there it has been difficult for many people in boxing to buy the narrative, if uh, I, I'd say that a number of premier boxing champions fighters are stars or superstars. For some reason, a number of really prominent writers and pundits really want to push back against that and sure. insist that Gervonta Davis is not a star, that Jermel Charlo is not a star, that Errol Spence is not a star. And it's like, you know, I think that now we can not so much the Charlo fight, but also uh, I think that that was just kind of sandwiched between like too much big boxing and like the, the attendance wasn't what these other fights were, but was still good. Uh, but in, in any case, all of these shows, uh, the buzz behind them, the attendance and everything, they've clearly demonstrated that a number of these fighters are stars. Mm -hmm. They are, whether you like it or not, they are um, whether or not they continue to win and, 
climb the pound for pound ladder, I guess, is another story. But without question, Gervonta Davis uh, against a guy like Raleigh Romero, especially, is demonstrating that he's got star power. Um, <clears throat> he's a lot of people's favorite current fighter for a reason, yours included, because he is the kind of fighter where it's like once he gets into a rhythm and starts opening up, he's scary. Totally. He's, he's the kind of guy where like he starts punching through the target and it's like, holy fuck dude like holy shit you know yeah like heads are snapping every which way it's scary it's frightening and that kind of stuff is uh you know it's it's definitely eye-catching a lot of people want to see it and so um it's good i think that he's clearly proving to be a star when a lot of people in the wake of not to just name drop these stupid ass easy to pick names and floyd manny but as soon as they started kind of fading out, people like every generation of fighters say, where are the superstars? Where are they? Where are they? There's no stars in boxing. Look, look around, you know, and look, fuck, look, there are Just chill. Like there's no good fights anymore. Anybody's saying that's stupid. There are, there's good fighters. There's good fights. They're everywhere. And Javante Davis is one of these good fighters. So yeah, it's good to see that this is, you know, almost certainly going to be a very successful show at Barclays this weekend. Um, also, especially because many people were saying, well, can Gervonta Davis sell outside of here or outside of this city or this region? And it's showing that he can. So in any case, uh, to go slightly, rewind slightly, just because, I mean, I just don't want to skip over it and, and act like uh, I don't care. Or we don't want to say anything about it. But as far as Raleigh Romero, I just, I guess I would say that the entire situation with his allegation sucks. And the only reason why I'm bringing it up uh, is because obviously in general, I, I would encourage anybody to believe uh, survivors and victims and accusers. Totally. Um, but the, like I said, the, the reason why this figures into the pre-fight talk is because Showtime and premier boxing champions, I don't know who made the final decision. But they did what was, I mean, really the kind of honorable thing that you would not expect from fight promoters or networks or anybody in charge who has say. And as soon as the allegations came up and as soon as they were being investigated and seemed, you know, uh, somewhat substantiated in terms of that, that the allegations were being investigated, I mean, mm -hmm. they pulled the plug. And so I think that for the people who are complaining about this fight, and saying like, well, we got Isaac Cruz, you know, like, what, why are we doing this shit? Like, why are we going through with this? Because they already canceled that fight, you know, like, we're kind of moving on here. Yeah. Well, I think that this is like, you know, they had promised this fight, and perhaps in part to Romero. And then when, as far as we know, the charges were dropped, Showtime or PBC, again, I'm not 100% sure, but whoever it is, is making good. And they're saying, well, you know, we pulled you out. And we were Get supposed back. to make yeah. this happen. So now we're making it happen. And on top of that, it's the kind of fight where the trash talk is heavy. And that alone, the trash talk alone is going to turn some heads. So look, it's a tough thing to talk about. It's awkward. How I talked about it probably was not the greatest either. But it's not easy to talk about. And not a lot of people are even going to address it at all. It's the, a part of the uh, this entire narrative that's not going to come up in the promotion as much as possible because who the fuck wants to talk about it now that we're done talking about it the trash talk like i said 
the trash talk is one of the big actually <clears throat> before we move on too much to the history what do you think is going to happen with davis romero um it's gonna be an awesome fight for as long as it lasts i don't expect it to last that long but at the same time man i wouldn't be surprised like i think romero's gonna surprise some people in terms of like i think most people think that raleigh's gonna get blasted in two rounds or so and that might as well that might just happen too could happen but i think that davis is gonna take his time trying to you know because like i mentioned earlier romero is kind of awkward and <clears throat> He has kind of a style he's going to wade in, and he is a strong guy. He's strong, and he does hit hard. So Davis is going to take a couple of rounds just to, you know, figure out what he's doing with it, and then from there, it's going to become a firefight. At some point, Raleigh's going to get in there and try to, like, grapple with him or do something, and once he starts with that, that's when, you know, Davis is going to fire back one of those monster counterpunches. So should be fun. Um, if you really want to categorize Romero in terms of, like, well, in one with trash talk in terms of, like, in two in terms of, like, pure awkwardness, you could look at someone like Ricardo Mayorga, you know what I mean? Um, I wouldn't say that Romero has the exact style like Mayorga. Like Mayorga was like a whole different animal in terms of strength and aggression, especially like early on when he like first came on the scene, knocking around six heads Lewis and beating up Vernon Forrest and such. But like um, before all the excesses really caught up to him and, you know, the beatings in the ring, that dude was an absolute beast. And the strength that he had and his awkwardness and the way he would wade in his unpredictability made him a tough commodity for anybody. That being said, I think Romero is going to be tough for a few rounds for Tank to adjust to. But once he figures it out, man, that's when it's going to become a firefight. And once that happens, I think Tank ends up stopping him. I think in the mid to late rounds. I think that's a pretty fair assessment, dude. I think that it might be a little bit earlier than that. But I think that overall oh. that the kind of like the arc of the fight is I see the same thing because... Um, we could see a situation where a free swinger gets caught in between his punches, yeah. especially from a guy like uh, Jermonte Davis, who is a fairly aggressive counter puncher. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him sparked or something like that because Jermonte Davis has big power. He has pound for pound level power, but uh, like you said, and like you mentioned, Raleigh Romero has just kind of a funky style an awkward style, uh, the kind of delivery that's not, textbook or orthodox and that can be tough to time that can be tough to adjust to Look at the way he like you see him training even when he's walking and all that everything about him is completely off like yeah it's it's awkward it's like he's very he's awkward, just man. a weird dude in general and yeah, and you, so this was jazz he's total avant-garde <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally yeah he's some shit where the time signature is just all over the place you don't know where it is but like, you know, it's uh it's it's really tough to adjust to fighters like those, especially if they can punch. Mm-hmm. And that makes that that adds an extra layer to having to figure out that style, which is already difficult to figure out. But my guess is that Jermonte Davis will settle in, will figure it out, and probably will stop him. Um, but how much trouble he has along the way, that that's kind of the question. Uh Raleigh Romero is only what like 13 to no, 14 to no, something like that. But he yeah. has a high knockout percentage. So anytime anybody as an opponent has a high knockout percentage, dude, you got to watch out. You definitely got to watch out. So and Tank admitted as much. He said that, you know, he knows that he's a hard hitter. So he's not going to just going to go out there and try to Mike Tyson him really quick. But I'll tell you what, he's a vicious finisher as well. Like you said, not, not only being one of the hardest punchers in boxing, if he gets you hurt, man, once he's, he's a shark, he just gets in there and finishes you off. 
and he's a beautiful finisher, man. This is gonna be a beautiful. It's gonna be a brutal fight. Brock Lesnar is gonna be popping that night, and I guarantee you, there's gonna be some brawls in the audience. He's got a high knockout percentage himself, so I mean, I'm I'm not talking that down either. Yeah. But re- regardless of the result, um, something that you hear people say or see people say, read people <laughs> say, when we talk about mythical matchups and potential matchups and stuff like that every so often someone will say oh that that would be worth it for the trash talk alone it's so like gervonta davis and raleigh romero perhaps not quite on that level but the trash talk definitely inspired us to talk about some of the greatest the greatest trash talkers greatest smack talkers in history so i mean there's actually a number of names like i i thought i could only think of a couple at first but then when I started kind of like really going down, I was like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah, that guy said this. Oh, yeah. And I remember that fight went, you know, this, this. So there's a lot to talk about. Who is one of the greatest trash talkers in history? I'm only just bringing him up just to finish it off because we just I literally just brought him up a second ago. But just to finish <laughs> the point on my yoga, I guess. Right. <laughs> I mean, when he came on the scene in the early 2000s, um as much as we've seen trash talkers throughout history and all that there was something different about him that from anyone else like he just brought it to like a different level of just being an asshole and just really just pure macho whatever you want to call it like there was very few guys that lit up smoking cigarettes right there on television immediately after a fight bragging about it saying everything he was gonna do never really respecting his opponent after the fight i mean we've seen duran do stuff like that but like my was just a total brand of just you know, and then how else would you describe it to man? Like the way he would act at weights, you know, <laughs> that can be a psychological thing. All right. You're struggling to make weight. My gets on the scale. He's eating an apple or he's eating a chicken wing over there and laughing at you while he's making weight and still eating, you know, and yep. you're just sitting there and you're like, fuck. So it's I don't, like, I don't, I don't remember which one was which, but one of them, one of the Vernon forest fights, he ate a chicken, a, ju- a drumstick. Yeah. And then another Vernon, the other one, he ate a piece of pizza. Totally, yep, I've seen that. I don't remember which one was which. I just remember that on both, which in and of itself, I mean, I never made weight for fucking shit, not since I was a teenager. So I'm not trying to say, but I've been around fighters enough to know that when when they're in the process of making weight, they're awful. It's terrible. It's hell. Like, you don't want to be around them. They don't want to be doing it. And then, you know, like we've seen, especially with mixed martial arts, it's more prevalent, but in boxing too, dudes half dead going to the scale and then just pounding Pedialyte and shit immediately afterwards, and you know, shit like that. And so that's probably more like common than not really. So to have your opponent on this high level fight going up there, just eating a bunch of fucking bullshit and talking and like flipping you off and stuff like that as you're doing it, like. I'm not saying that Vernon Forrest was like weak-minded or anything. I'm just saying that I could I could see that affecting you psychologically for sure. I remember I used to train with a kid when I was young, this uh this kid named Casey. And at the junior Olympics at the at the local ones that was held in the because the New England ones were held in New Bedford. And um I remember one time before his fight, he was sitting there and and this was before weigh-in, by the way. All right, we're all, we're all just sitting there at the weigh-in area. <laughs> Casey's sitting there and he was hungry and his dad brought him a McChicken and a, and a large fry. And he was actually eating it. And he's going to town on this and everybody else is kind of looking at him, including me. And there's like a couple of kids in the way like, hey man, how are you even eating that? And he was like, because I'm hungry. 
And then after he does, he gets on scale and then like he still weighed a pound or two below, you know? And everyone was just kind of like, what the fuck? And then he went out there and whooped some kids' ass that night, I remember. <laughs> king. Yeah. Future fucking king. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just the kind of thing where I, I couldn't imagine that type of psychological torture. And then on top of that, Mayorga's calling Vernon Forrest, like he's calling him my son. Yeah. And shit like that. Like, you're my son, like going into the rematch and shit. Like, man. He and was then just... the stuff he would do, like, and that's the reason why he would parlay that into all kinds of different future gigs. Because even after he lost uh, to Corey Spinks, when what was deemed an upset back then, um, immediately afterwards, instead of like kind of going on the back burner, when Felix Trinidad decided to make a comeback, guess who was put in that position? Mayorga. And Mayorga right away. No one had gotten under Trinidad's skin like that besides Bernard Hopkins. Hopkins had to throw down the flag of Puerto Rico for him to like really get that, you know, a reaction out of Trinidad that few that few could. Mayorga didn't have to do all that. Mayorga just had to run his mouth again. All this stuff, Trinidad, you're this and that, you're a bitch, all kinds of other stuff he was calling him, running, going over and over and over and over. Trinidad is fuming by the night, you know, at MSG. And then to top it off again, what was that? Round round one. Mayorga sits there, Trinidad, boom, lands a left hook. Mayorga drops his hand to start doing the whole, like, sticking his chin out, right? Boom, hits him with another left hook. And then, boom, hits him with another one. Mayorga actually starts doing a jig with his yeah. legs. And everyone's going absolutely wild. I couldn't even imagine Mayorga being says it's a trick. Yeah. Because you could see the punches come. Fucking Larry Merchant. <laughs> Yeah, dude, that was a, that was fucking great. I remember going to to watch that at a friend's house live, and we had like maybe like ten of us or something like that in like the living room watching. We were like, "Oh shit!" You know, as soon as that happened, we were like, "Oh shit, man!" But those but those kinds of antics, you know what I'm saying? Like Ricardo Mayorga, love him or hate him, and a lot of people hated him. I never really liked him. I thought he was kind of you know strayed too far into dickish, like you know like was funny sometimes and then at other times was like kind of cruel i was like god damn but yeah he he and anyone get, that's like I think he was accused of assaulting alexis argoyo one time wasn't uh wasn't he dating alexis argoyo's daughter or something like that i have no idea what was going i'm on. almost positive he was as a matter of fact something dust up between the two i'm almost positive that he was oh damn at least at one time that's that's just a recipe for disaster. But I will like I, I will say this. Hopefully, I'm not just spreading some stupid ass rumor. But I'm pretty sure. Anyway, I will say this: the one time I met Mayorga was the first press conference I ever attended, and that's when I was fresh out of college and doing a gig with Showtime, and that was for the the Vargas fight. Now it wasn't the one where Vargas punched him in the face and the whole melee broke out. So at this press conference, if you remember it, they had a divider between them, like a whole. A, yeah, dude, whole that was like, <laughs> that was like the, a perfect storm for like, you know, Fernando Vargas was the kind of guy where like he could be kind of nice and cool on the promotion. But if it was yeah. anybody who was talking shit, like it was over, bro. Totally, totally. And so they have the glass divider, but that really didn't like stop anything because immediately when Vargas gets on stage, <laughs> yeah. he's already standing there. Mayorga appears. Don King is going off. Like, again, it's my first press conference. I'm in awe right now because this is a crazy spectacle. Everybody is already high tension. Security guards are on notice. King is going wild. 
Vargas is fuming and sweating. And um, yeah. it's the summertime, by the way. So <laughs> Mayorga shows up and Mayorga, like Muhammad Ali, went back in the day or something, starts immediately starts talking shit as he walks into the, as he walks to the ballroom. Pointing and pointing at all kinds of other people, going all kinds of wildness. Vargas, within two seconds, jumps off the stage and starts charging at him because he's pissed off. <laughs> So they're not even at the dividers. They're not even on stage yet. Vargas jumps off, starts charging at him. Mayorga is over there running his mouth back. Like security guard literally picked me up because I'm a small person and moved and just like handed me out of the way like a child and ran over there to break them up. <laughs> I had a growth spurt for like two seconds. You know what I mean? It was wild. <laughs> they didn't come to blows again. They came close. But I'll say this. After the like it, it calmed down a little bit and things got underhand, Mayorga came by us and like he just walked up, gave me dap and gave um the other person I was with that just for the hell of it unprovoked anything just came over just kind of like shook our hands and smiled and kept the pushing it, weren't they like like pushing the plexiglass like at each yeah. other or some yeah. shit oh, yeah yeah totally they're like going to like spinning at each other or... yeah man it looked like they were talking through a jail call or something like that. they were just kind of <laughs> and yelling it was ridiculous and then I... Vargas ended up losing it of all things he was the next one that was supposed to take my and use him as like his yeah. comeback fight like Delo Hoya did like Tito did, and he blew it. <laughs> Dude, he just, he had so much talent. And I know a lot of people would say like, oh, you know, Tito ruined him and whatever, fine. But I think that a lot of it was just that he used to blow up and wait. He would get out of shape. And then he just, he did not live a very healthy lifestyle for a long mm -hmm. time, I think, dude. And I think that that's, that's a lot of it, man, honestly. Like, I could relate, but <laughs> fuck, dude, I'm not a fighter. But either way, for that matter, Fernando Vargas did some pretty decent shit talking himself. I guess if you would call spitting on Ross Thompson after fucking knocking him down shit talk. Yeah, seriously. That was really, I mean, like, I know him and Thompson were going back and forth before that fight. Like, yeah. you see the press conference and they were, you know, Thompson was jawjacking a lot. Like, he was really confident. I don't know if there was what happened beforehand or some training, whatever yeah, it was. No. But Thompson was very confident before that fight, <laughs> pissed off Vargas. Like you said, it didn't take much for Fernando Vargas to um, get angry. You know, he had a very short fuse. So, yeah. Thompson gets dropped. Vargas jumps right in front of him. <laughs> like something Tony Ayala Sr. would have done. Not Tony Ayala Jr., excuse me. Tony Ayala Jr., I think, actually did to one of his past opponents. And um, something like Duran would have done. And what did, it, what did he say to fucking Oscar DeLoya? We got the ferocious squad over here. We got the Peter Pan squad over there. I, I, I'm in the best shape of my life. <laughs> and he kept like talking like Michael Jackson, like he was like he was Oscar. And then he kept on flexing and flexing. You find out he was roided to the yeah. And then finally he tested positive and got TKO'd. Oh, brutal! He All never for lived something that, that he claimed that possibly might have probably didn't happen as a all kid. because full slip. All because. He slipped on the ice yeah. all because he fucking slipped on the ice. He fell into a ditch or whatever when he's mad yeah. at Oscar. I would have done the same thing. Would have kept he, on running looking. Yeah, I would have been like, who the fuck, what? Who are you? Some bum is on the fucking ice. Yeah. I didn't oh. even think twice about it. He fell on the fucking Oscar ice. And he's forgot mad. about less than 10 minutes later. And Vargas dude, I think just, just sum that up. He fell and then got mad at Oscar so mad that he wanted to fight him fought him and got his ass kicked and tested positive 
that's like four L's, dude. That's like you fell. He didn't help you. You wanted to kick his. He kicked your ass, and you tell it's like five L's. Fuck. That's brutal. All right. Well, let me go ahead and move on to another one before we get too caught up in the the Vargas Mayorga talk. Actually, dude. Um, well, no, I'll, I'll save that for a moment. I'll, I'll go straight to, well, you brought him up, Roberto Duran. Totally. Roberto Duran is the the crazy thing is that he wasn't always a trash talker. It was just that there were certain fighters he really didn't like. Well, one in particular, but there were certain fighters that he really did not like. And if he didn't like them that he, he mistreated them. Like, I mean, he did not treat them well, either in the ring or out. And in this particular instance, I mean, obviously the 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 one we're going to point to so readily for him is going to be uh, Ray Leonard, <laughs> you know, kind of threw some shade at Ray Leonard's wife, needless to say, you know, talked a lot of shit. Yeah. <laughs> so Slipped off Leonard's wife, you know, talked a bunch of shit, like you said, before the fight did everything. Leonard um at that point the consummate professional the guy that you know so much in the media that he was in right and just always being the face and always that like he he was like cool like he always just had a smile and no one really got the best of him he had a vicious streak as he saw in the ring but well to the point where it was almost like contrived you know like people were like oh is he people still say like you know is he rehearsed type of shit and something oscar kind of dealt with in the in the 90s too for to a degree but you knew there was like a meanness under it. It just, you were just waiting for someone to like really push his buttons enough for it to, to come out. And Duran did that, but Duran did that brilliantly because he got Leonard so mad that, you know, he ended up fighting Duran's fight. And Duran did that, really did that on purpose. It wasn't so much for the fact that like he hated Leonard. I'm sure he, I'm sure he, you know, he definitely sees and thought that Leonard was getting a lot of accolades that he didn't deserve because of being an Olympian and, all the publicity he was getting and all this yada, yada, yada. But like, he also believed to himself too that he knew he could beat Leonard and he knew if he could piss him off enough that like really get under his skin, which he was a master at, then he'd be able to get Leonard to, you know, want to do the macho thing and fight him man to man. Perfect. And he did. And it was actually part of the history, in my opinion, remembers that fight just like a little bit wrong, not wrong, but just like a little off. Because I think the narrative is kind of like, oh, you know, Duran sucked him into his fight and kicked his ass. And it's like, mm, it was a really close fight, actually, dude. Very close. And so it wasn't, and Duran obviously prevailed and I think clearly deserved the decision and did suck Ray Leonard into that kind of fight and won doing that. Mm-hmm. But he, it wasn't like he, it wasn't like Ray Leonard didn't win rounds, is all I'm saying. Oh, so no. And it, it was, was a, a very, very close fight. It was a very close fight. And that's why a lot of people consider it maybe the single greatest win in boxing history. Well, it's certainly up there. And for the it, timing of everything, yeah. It was timing of everything, insane. Sugar Ray Leonard at his absolute peak, the way he did it. He, I mean, both guys at their best. And Duran, on his terms, you know, just it wasn't like an all out brawl, man. It was a brilliantly fought fight. And Leonard, to his credit, really came on strong at the end too man it was really 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 close but Duran clearly won the fight and rightfully so yeah. Leonard admitted it as such but like you know even after the fight bro right like the way Duran just dismissed Leonard just like get away from me Leonard tried to finally you know embrace him whatever Duran off 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 like that and still shit talking him like there was you know a certain yeah thing and then walked over to the ropes and started grabbing his dick yeah just <laughs> damn 
that was, that was Durant. You know, he he had no problem doing anything like that. <laughs> well, and it's uh, it the way that he uh, he stopped trash talking as much after that first fight too. And I remember reading like what they had said at one of the press conferences for the rematch and Duran got all annoyed because somebody like basically people kept asking, you know, like referring to him as a street brawler, you know, or a street fighter. And he was just like, stop. Like, can you guys stop with this bullshit? Because I'm not a street fighter. I'm, I didn't grow up a street fighter or anything like that. I learned how to fight in the gym. Like I'm a boxer and stop calling me a street fighter because that's not, I'm not just some street fighter. You know, because he took it brilliant. Yeah, he took brilliant. it as like that was like a bad thing. Like, you know, that it wasn't because, uh, you know, when we hear that, often we associate that with like, oh, they came up the hard way and they're a fucking badass. And mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think that he heard that and he thought like somebody was saying he was unskilled or didn't know what the fuck he was doing. And he was like, no, no, no. Like, I'm schooled, bro. Like, don't fucking, you know, I got that degree. Get the fuck out of here. So I think that that was uh, one of the things he was saying for the rematch. And it's funny because Ray Leonard flipped a script on his ass totally. and just started, just started razzing his ass, just fucking zinging him, and fucking Roberto Duran got pissed. And I, it was, that was part of it too. I think that he was too much messing around, had too much difficulty making weight. Well, that was it was a lot of things. Well, making sure that he got an immediate rematch and taking, making sure that it took yeah. place, you know, only a few months after this. Like five well, and Leonard, after. yeah, Leonard admits to it even now. He's just like, oh yeah, totally. I, of course, I pressed my fucking you know advantage. Mm-hmm. And there's no way, like, for a big fight rematch, there's never, 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 never in today's age where a fight would take place five, six months after the first one like that, like quick turnaround. And not a fight of that magnitude. Not no. a fight of that magnitude, not at all. And like you said, Duran was out partying immediately after that. That was the biggest fight he ever won. This was the biggest win in Panama history. Everything like this was one of the biggest wins in boxing history. Duran was the man right now, pound for pound, number one in the sport, just, you know, that dude. And, but Duran was also a person that was, you know, a gluttony. He liked to go out, he liked to party, he liked to eat, he liked to indulge. And he certainly did all of that immediately afterwards. He had his share of women, he had his share of food, he had his share of drink. You know, he never touched drugs or anything like that. That's why he was able to last so long. But I mean, he was a partier and he was outraging and doing his thing. And like you said, man, he was not in shape when he got back for this fight and so quickly to sign back on and it took him a lot to get all that weight off and he wasn't really at his peak even still in the fight it was still relatively close Duran was still doing it was yeah man yeah, it was, it was really very close it wasn't until Leonard started really pulling some nonsense in the last few <laughs> rounds pulling some tricks out yep. there it was just like the hell and it was the last one this was the sequence that you knew Duran was done with when Leonard went and then hit him with the jab immediately afterwards and yeah, yeah, yeah. did the old yeah did the old kind of helicopter fucking like yeah hit him yeah, with the jab. yeah he was like spun his hand around i mean that became synonymous with leonard that it ended up being a knockout kings video games and everything like that that was like a specialty yep. and he did that to Rand. duran was so disgusted because that's not him he's macho and all this other stuff and he's made to look a fool plus he's probably not feeling good too like you said he's just not in the best of shape and he's just kind of like fuck it but <clears throat> immediately, if you notice, like seconds after he says no mas and quits, I don't think he realized what he did. It was like the heat of the moment because right after he did that, and I think he started realizing what just happened, you see him try to like stop and be like, no, 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 I want to go again. 
like he tries to move in and the referee's yeah. like you know that's it and yeah yeah dude he well he got him and he outfought him too it like you said it, both fights both fights were super close it wasn't like ray leonard kicked his ass in the rematch either it was just that whatever it was i mean no, I Leonard he, was ahead you can look at the scores right here and Leonard was ahead by two points on the on two of the cards and one point on one on the other card so. that sounds about right yeah. yeah it was a very close fight um but whatever it was duran wasn't wasn't having it <laughs> he couldn't have it so i mean i guess that's always the danger you know turnabout's fair play you're gonna talk shit then i guess you better you better back it up and he he wound up getting his he wound up getting his jaw jacked a little bit in that rematch, but nonetheless, um, I know that he was saying he was definitely uh, saying something to Davy Moore ahead of ahead of time, but I can't remember what it was. But of course, there's also the famous post fight after he just totally fucking annihilated Ray Lampkin. Yeah, yep. today today I sent him to the hospital. You know, next time I sent him to the morgue. That's My dad a... used to always bring that up to me when I was like first learning about the sport because he watched that live, I guess. And he always, he never forgot that. He was like, "Oh, I remember the time Durant said he was going to send a guy to you know said he was going to kill a guy next time." And I was like, "Whoa, he said that!" Like he, he said yeah, it a little right? differently. He's, he said something to the effect of like, "Oh, like I wasn't even trying. If I would have tried, yeah, I would have next time. I would have something like that." Yeah something like that and it just wound up getting translated a little differently and passed around in english a different way but regardless it was was grim shit it was very grim shit and that was quoted years later there was the mid 90s i want to say like 95 or not no it wasn't 95 around like 96 or so and they did a thing where duran they did an article where duran was given a bunch of photos of like different fights and stuff and he had to talk about it like being reminiscent like there was a photo of him in his leather jacket when he was young, first on the scene in New York. And he talked about, you know, how he felt about that and, you know, being a young kid in the big city and all this other yada, yada, yada. So then they show the clip, uh, the photo of him over Ray Lampkin. Like you said, Duran in the, in Panama, standing over him with the beard, just menacing and Lampkin just splayed out unconscious. And Duran was quoted. I'm not, I'm not completely quoting him correctly here, but he said something to the effect of, you know, people say I was going to say I was going to kill him, you know, and maybe that seems kind of grim, but like, it is in fact true. Probably if I was in good shape, I probably would have killed him. Like he still didn't really change his opinion all those years later. He was just kind of matter of fact about it. He was just like, yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. Well, he caught him with the left hook that almost took his head off. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's brutal shit. And, and Lampkin was a good fighter. It wasn't like he was some scrub. Yeah, man, Lampkin was in a very, was a very, very good fighter. It's, he was stuck in one of those divisions that was like stacked. He couldn't he, get past. Yeah, he came man, along at the wrong time. Hazers. Both guys had his number. Yeah, man. But if he came at a different era, totally would have been a champion. Yeah. Very underrated in the long run Esteban de, de Jesus too. So, I mean, it's like, you know, you came yeah. up in an era with, two really 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 good lightweights had the the awful fortune of of walking into that one to mention this so you mentioned duran one of duran's the only guy to go to distance twice with duran at lightweight was a guy by the name of edwin virouette and edwin virouette was another one who was a major trash talker in fact he was the only guy back then to trash talk a prime duran while still going to distance with him and giving him fits (laughs) 
both both the Virouette brothers actually did not like they did not like Duran and Duran apparently did not like them what it stemmed from I have absolutely no idea but I'm almost positive they're uh Puerto Rican yes I mean I'm not I'm not saying that has anything to do with it like oh everybody knows Puerto Ricans hate Panamanians like I have no fucking clue I'm just saying that like that might have had something to do with it but I have no idea but I do remember reading that they were fairly, you know, trash talky when it came to their fights. Yeah, especially Edwin Verouet. Like he just, even to them, he had a tough style he, too. He did. Oh no, these guys were tough as hell, man. Verouet was a beast. He wasn't knocked out until the very end of his career. Um, one of them against Edwin Rosario, which you know, no shame in that. A prime Rosario coming on the scene was knocking the hell out of everybody. And he was also knocked out by um, another guy who was very flamboyant and funny, Alvin Too Sweet Hayes. Hmm. Um, if you're from the if you're from the Michigan Detroit area, that's a name you might remember from the eighties. Anyways, that was at the very end of his career. When Vera Witt was a lightweight contender during the heyday of Duran, no one was knocking him out. All right, like he and it was another guy that fought a who's who. Like you said, he had a very herky jerky style, hard to gauge, tough boxer, threw a lot of punches. Um, Maybe slightly in the mold of a guy like Manuel Medina. But like, you know, whatever, regardless of how it was, he gave Duran fits. And the first time they fought was a non-title fight. And Duran clearly won, but Vera went with the distance and gave Duran a very good, you know, gave a very good account of himself. And Duran clearly didn't like him, so they had a rematch. And when they had the rematch, same thing. Vera was talking a lot of shit throughout the fight, went the distance, clearly lost, but same thing. And Verowet was interviewed. There's been there's interviews out there on YouTube on him, where um, you hear him still. I think he's a trainer in the Bronx. I'm not sure if he's still active or not. But at his gym, he was talking about the Duran fights. He still feels the same way. Like he's proud of going the distance. You can say he's really proud of his accomplishments. But he was like, "Oh yeah, man, I made Duran look like shit." He was like, "I'll box the boxer. I did that. They know I won those fights still. Absolutely." And there's like one photo of him that he has like framed that he loves. It's like that's him spearing Duran with a jab. And Duran's head snapping back. He was like, yeah, it's the second fight mm-hmm, for the title. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, it's cool. Like, I would love, love to meet a guy like Edwin Virouette. If he's still active, I might go, you know, I would love to visit his gym and talk with him for a bit because I'm sure he has some fascinating stories. But, um, yeah. You know what? To be honest, though, if I went the distance twice with a prime Duran, I'd be still talking about That's that. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> if, there were, if there were photos of me legitimately hitting Roberto Duran with a punch, I'd have that shit framed myself. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Jeez. I make copies of it and sign it to everybody in the neighborhood. Yep. And like, I'd just <laughs> give it out. That shit would become the currency around my neighborhood. Seriously. Walking to a bar just giving out photos. You know who I am? Boop, 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 boop. Yeah, just start making it rain, tipping <laughs> with the photos. Yeah, yeah, straight up, dude. It's That's a, a pretty damn good a description of his style, too. Herky-jerky really difficult to deal with and i mean when you especially with a guy like duran at lightweight who you know that's considered his prime weight and he looked great and everything that was one of the only fighters that was giving him fits at that weight because he was and still running your mouth about it too (laughs) gotta be frustrating who's i mean for a guy like duran who's very proud and likes to knock the shit out of everybody that he fights yeah i'm sure he was totally frustrated with him Who's another trash talker? Well, we were talking about him recently, like a week ago. I think we were messaging just because of like how unfathomable the awesome it was. 
um, that he was trash talking during this fight, but we got to bring up Jack Johnson, one of the OGs. Yep. Dude, he, I mean, when you add in how legitimately dangerous it was for him to be talking shit, because, I mean, we're talking about an era where fights would get stopped by the cops if they were just getting a little bit too out of hand, like too brutal. Like somebody's getting their ass kicked a little too bit too bad. The cops are just like, all right, all right, all right. Enough of that, y'all. Somebody's getting punched. So we're talking about, you know, and we're talking about a black dude punching white guys yes, and, and talking shit while he's doing it. Just that takes some balls, dude. I know, I know that the tale of Jack Johnson has kind of been bastardized a bit to make him probably a little too heroic. But totally. even so, like, I mean, just the balls that that takes. Massive. Dude, like, he was, I mean, you're talking turn of the century America. It's still very, very entrenched in racism. And the black fighters that are on at that point, they're not really accepted in America, but at the same time, they're not like overly hated either because they're not like they, you know, guys like Sam Laneford, Joe Jeanette, um, Jack Blackburn, um, Sam McVeigh, the list goes on and on of different fighters from that time. Like they more or less, they didn't, you know, do anything to really put themselves in the, in the, in the social sphere like that. Like they just kind of kept to themselves and made sure they didn't cause too much of a ruckus. Jock Johnson wasn't anything like that. <laughs> well and and there was and sorry to interrupt but there was no, actually totally. there were writers mostly white writers of course who of course. specifically talked about this like i mean in very descriptive terms essentially saying that fighters like joe gans uh joe walcott but to a lesser extent because joe walcott also got into some shit sometimes <laughs> yeah but, <he> did. <laughs> but like a joe Jeanette was well that would have been a little teeny bit later but um yeah like joe gans was probably the first uh, peter jackson sorry that was who i was trying to think of peter jackson and joe gans were the first two fighters george dixon too maybe uh yeah to a lesser extent just because he wasn't as famous at the time yeah but like that's who these white writers would point to as black fighters or black men how black men should behave because they're quiet and they're not talking shit and they're respectful and they're always saying yes sir or no ma'am or whatever and basically getting the getting out of their way type of thing you know that's how they wanted them to behave i mean that's like we don't really need to break this down we all understand why at this point but um that being said jack johnson then comes along and Jack Johnson clearly didn't really have much interest in, in conforming to a lot of that kinds of behavior. And so then like you and I have passed along like just articles and stuff like that, that we find. And every so often, probably more than every so often, when I actually look for articles about these fighters, there are cartoons and depictions that are just fucking awful, but they're specifically fucking awful when they're depicting the fighters who according to white society aren't well behaved like totally. joe joe gans ain't getting drawn like that nearly as much absolutely you know, peter jackson not nearly as much either these were well-dressed gentlemen whereas i mean you know jack johnson was well-dressed but it was gaudy it was over the top it was flashy and he was you know like he had a golden smile and he was always smiling and people were like i don't like that golden smile it's like 
then they make them extra dark and everything with the smile yeah, all like it was weird and yeah like awful just to- and sam langford was another one like i'm getting visuals thinking about him again like with the cards that they came and other stuff it's awful yeah it's terrible sam langford was another one with who they depicted as like like an animal half the time mm-hmm. so anyway not to be a lot of those dead guys horse. a lot of those guys like jazz musicians um later on in the 40s and such they got more respect and admiration in europe 100 percent. yeah and i mean it it's not that the racism it's not like there was no racism there was definitely oh, an was element of yeah. gawking racism and you know and curiosity but ra- curiosity stemming from racism a lot of the time but even so they were at least able to be treated not like fucking animals and get paid totally. and not be prohibited from you know doing x y or z a lot of the time there were still rules as far as who they could fight and couldn't fight and whatnot but anyway and according to a lot of writers of that time i guess they had to pick it a litter of who they wanted to bag of they want you know who they wanted bed to with the women <laughs> well yeah there were that was definitely less frowned upon yeah. specifically in paris and in france where uh a lot of black fighters in the early 1900s were super uh, uh super popular and as a heavyweight champion so i mean you know getting back to the whole trash talk thing and not to beat the dead horse about the racism talk regardless of the fact that it is a massive part of the narrative and shouldn't be forgotten getting back to the trash talk part you know even in the course of winning the heavyweight title against tommy burns like oh is that what you got mr tommy is that what you got mr tommy you know you know just trying to basically back with the stupidest of insults with like the shredded bloodied lips and you know yeah like it was just just absolutely terrible yeah telling them to stand and fight you know stand and fight with them fight with me shit like that and no why would he no he's tooling you around and totally whipped the shit out of you so that's what he did (laughs) and then basically the entire way uh one of the criticisms obviously of jack johnson as a heavyweight champion was that he never defended the title against one of his uh black contemporary fighters who, you know, a, a handful of them definitely deserves title shots without a question. But even so, during these title defenses against these white fighters, that's pretty much all he was doing the entire time was talking shit, including especially against James Jeffries, who everyone coaxed out of retirement because they wanted so badly a white guy to be champion again because they just could not handle this black dude being champion. So they got the fattest, they got the fattest motherfucker on the face of the planet to go fucking fight him. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Free's just minding his business, sitting on his farm, and I mean, chilling. Like you said, just getting really fat, whatever. And then they coax him out of retirement. Finally, decides to do it. And I think what's the best part of that whole fight is not besides Jeffrey's getting his ass kicked and you know, kind of shoved and Johnson shoving it to white America, but the fact that all the shit he was talking to jim corbett is pretty awesome all right now you know everybody gentleman jim corbett obviously was not much of a gentleman especially if you know your history like the guy was a seething racist and just not a generally just not a good person you know despite what he was portrayed as being a classy gentleman always dressed to the nines and mr scientist you know the father of scientific boxing of the modern stuff and yada 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 like he just was not a good person at all at all and he was like the head of the helm basically calling for Johnson's head and demanding that Jeffries come out of retirement and do something for this because we can't have this ghastly man 
as the heavyweight champion. And so if you like, you know, even more so than John L. Sullivan, like if you go through that time, Sullivan, noted racist himself, was a little bit more low key than even Corbett was. Corbett was much more out there how much he seethingly hated Johnson. So regardless, um, you had this fight, you know, during the fight, and obviously Johnson quickly proves that he's like, you know, Jeffrey's master and he's toying with him and doing what he's done, basically what he did to Tommy Burns, slapping him around. But while he's doing it, he is like, after like the third or fourth round, it starts where Jim Corbett starts chiming in, just give him a little something, Jeff. Go ahead, hit him in the body. Blah, 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 blah. And that's when Johnson starts scrolling back and smiling at him. Oh, yeah, like this. Boom, boom, boom. How you like that, Mr. You know, how you like that, Mr. Jim? You see Corbett <laughs> inaudible, you know, like um, rumbling person, like a bastard. Rumbling and yeah, racist yelling and all that other stuff. A few rounds later, I think he's getting tired, Jim. I think he wants to fight a little bit. Get in on him. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Like this, Mr. Corbett. <laughs> Looks at him and smiles again. Yeah, probably Boiling. grabbing his weird straw hat. Yes. Oh. Yeah, pulling it down, get all pissed off. <laughs> Finally, when the, the fight is up, you got to do something. Just get out there and fight him. Oh, like this. Pa, 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 pa. Probably Jeffries is looking at man, shut the fuck up. All right. You get yeah, you're making my ass kick worse, bro. Stop <laughs> like, it. Stop it. <laughs> you know. You're just pissing him off. Stop doing this. That that photo of Johnson standing over Jeffries, who's tumbled into the ropes and, you know, has yeah. finally kind of like taken Iconic. the Iconic photo. Yeah, dude, that shit is just like, and you see the audience just looking like, fuck. And there was a, yeah, and there's a photo in that, um, the uh, Nat Fleischer historical boxing book that everybody mm -hmm. has that Corbett is seething immediately after the fight. You see them, the hat, the whole thing. Dude, his face looks like the Emperor from Star Wars. It's just in a, a massive, just different, like, grimace and wrinkles because he is Getting so angry. by the moment. Just livid, absolutely livid by what he just saw. You know what I mean? Everything he had banked on, all that just crashed down in front of him. But here's so the thing, too, man, about this trash talking. History would kind of, like, you know how Corbett was like the older guy trying to needle Johnson and piss him off and try to be that thorn on the side. We talked about this before. A couple of decades later, Jack Johnson ended up being that for Joe Lewis. And still with his shit talking, you know? That's true. Well, and actually to the point where, I mean, I didn't even expect to bring this up, but to the point where, according to some reports, a crowd almost, yes. think about this. Think about this. Just, I mean, you're Jack Johnson. You are an icon, a hero to the black community. You're the first black heavyweight champion. And you talk so much shit that a crowd almost turns on you and gets you. A black crowd in Harlem because you trash talk Joe Lewis. After this first Schmeling fight, ran up there with his winnings because he bet on Schmeling and started running his mouth about how he was right now smelling knocked out Joe Lewis in Harlem. So brutal. Immediately after the fight. No one said he was the smartest guy on the planet. No. Right? <laughs> you know. So brutal, dude. And that was all because he couldn't get Jack, well, because he was throwing kind of a, a hissy fit because Jack Blackburn was Lewis's trainer and not him. And he didn't well, like Jack Blackburn. <laughs> and so supposedly, according to Jack Blackburn, 
because I mean, this is only one side of the story, but um, at the time, Jack Blackburn said in interviews, because it was like a slight controversy, because it was like, oh, the former heavyweight champion and the only black heavyweight champion doesn't support this fighter who everybody expects to be the future heavyweight champion, you know, what the fuck is up with that? Well, and so Jack Blackburn during the during that time gave some interviews and in the interviews, he said that he had sparred Jack Johnson way back in the day because he was a fighter, Chappie, Black, Jack Blackburn. Very, very good one himself. And he was he was way smaller than Jack Johnson, although Jack Johnson uh, grew, obviously, and had been fighting for a long time, but that he had sparred Jack Johnson and that he didn't beat him, but that he had you know gotten some punches on him and that Jack Johnson didn't like it, and that because he felt Jack Johnson, according to him, felt that Jack Blackburn was trying to like show him up, make him look bad. And so uh, there was a uh, falling out between them because they were like training partners and gym mates and stuff like that. And so Jack Blackburn hated Jack Johnson for this and basically according to you know popular lore i don't know exactly how you could confirm it or not because he didn't really say but according to popular lore the seven laws or whatever that joe lewis was made to follow by his management was inspired by the way jack johnson acted and not so much the way he acted but the way that white America reacted to the way that the way that Jack Johnson was acting. So for instance, you couldn't gloat over a fallen opponent. You couldn't be seen, uh, you know, with any, you couldn't have your picture taken with any white women. You couldn't go into a restaurant with any white women, you know, like there was this whole set of fucking rules that he had to follow. And in any case, Jack Johnson's behavior, according to them inspired that. Oh yeah. But, oh, yeah. But yeah, so there was a whole backstory between Jack Blackburn and Jack Johnson. But Jack Johnson had been talking shit for a while. And it's true. And what's what's interesting is that Johnson initially was in support of Lewis. Like he, you know, when Lewis first came on the scene, Johnson backed him and said that he had the stuff to to overtake and become future heavyweight champion. But it was after a few. It took a little bit of time, but after you know, Johnson slowly started meeting with. Oh, you know, Lewis looks really good, but he still needs a few adjustments here and there. No, no, Lewis has the stuff. Yeah, yeah, Lewis has the stuff, but he just needs to work on something. Actually, you know what? If Lewis really wants to take his game to the next level, he should make me as his trainer. And what initially turned Johnson... The old Oscar De La Hoya, I have the blueprint. Yeah, yep. (laughs) And what initially, I think, turned Johnson off was that he visited, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he visited Lewis's manager, Julian Black, and that's his name, right? And um, yeah, he had a few, and yeah. yeah. So he went to visit Roxborough him. Black, was another one. Yeah, and in Roxborough too, they might. It was either one of Julian Black or John Roxborough, both of them. But he went to visit them, and they were the same camp as um, Jack Blackburn, where they didn't like Jack Johnson. And when Johnson went to go plead his case to be like, "Hey, man, you know, take Blackburn out. I, I want to be Lewis's trainer," they kicked him out, and quite vocally, they're like, "Fuck out of here. We want nothing to do with you. Like nothing." And Johnson, feeling very insulted that he was rebunked like that, you know, rebuffed, was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And that's when he started yada, 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 boom, 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 boom. And then he never really stopped. And when he died in that car accident, I think he was on his way to Joe Lewis's fight rematch with Billy Conn, wasn't he? <laughs> yep. Or at least that's what they say. Yeah. 
that he was with his whoever was the person who like accompanied him at the time that he had like a a person who like looked after him or whatever Mm -hmm. or or would just go with him on like road trips because he was like he was obsessed with driving he fucking Mm -hmm. loved to drive and he loved to drive fast so he was always getting like you know the fastest cars available and then just fucking going you know from this city to another in his fast cars and uh yeah that's how he died wound up running into some other car or something like that and dying pretty much instantly yeah well yeah definitely one of the top tier trash talkers absolutely no question especially given the circumstances like i said so another one since well we'll just keep it flowing since you brought him up but uh since you talked about him but bob fitzsimmons specifically toward gentleman jim corbett he didn't like him so bob fitzsimmons had some this Good. isn't a, this is not a long entry. even more of a fitzsimmons fan i know and it, this is not a long entry but he had some at the time what would have been considered absolute fucking awesome trash talk toward james corbett so basically that's old timey talk too i know it yeah dude and it's it's basically stuff that would have been like oh that's barely printable you know at the time but just to kind of (laughs) set this up a little bit during the 1890s right like the whole the popular narrative or history of it is that uh john l sullivan was the kind of transition fighter between the bare knuckle era and the gloved era uh there's kind of conflicting reports as far as what john l sullivan preferred whether he preferred gloves or he preferred to fight bare knuckle but looking back i think it's pretty clear he liked to fight with the gloves because he had more glove fights than not and so point being when he was defeated by james corbett james corbett was kind of like considered all right well this is the first gloved era heavyweight champion so in any case not too long after that bob fitzsimmons enters the picture and he was all dude that fool was going bald ever since he was like 10 years old so it's tough to know even how old he was no but like he enters the picture and when he takes over as the heavyweight champion defeats jim corbett for whatever reason jim corbett was still lingering about and trying to claim the heavyweight championship and so for whatever reason there was some group of kind of writers and pundits who were like buying into it at the time and there was some confusion even though there really was no confusion but they were trying to bill uh james corbett still as the heavyweight champion yeah and so bob fitzsimmons was not having that shit he didn't like that shit whatsoever and he he went to the papers and he called james corbett and i quote a cur I've heard uh, that. <laughs> so in which a, a cur, of course, is like a like a like a mangy dog or, you know, like a, a slang for like a dog or whatever. Um, what that's else? That's what Bill Kowinski called Fitzsimmons. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Like that was, I guess, the that's just like the pinnacle of like, that's like motherfucker or something like that. And like Canelo's going, oh, you'd fuck the motherfuck you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's not going to have that shit. Oh, damn it. I, I just lost it. I had it over here. I had like a, a little quote um oh yeah there he goes he said if i ever if i do meet him again i guarantee to kill him stone dead before he leaves the ring um yeah dude basically fitzsimmons was just like man they weren't having that shit and apparently they also got into a handful of like shoving matches and trash talk battles and bars and stuff like that and 
Bob Fitzsimmons was apparently just, you know, God tier fucking trash talker when it came to shit throwing shit off the cuff, which is First hilarious. Time, in a street fight, I would pick Fitzsimmons all day. He would have absolutely throttled Corbett. It's it's hilarious because even now, especially now, I guess, however many years later, uh, more than a century later, I post a photo of Bob Fitzsimmons and he looks like the most gangly, unassuming, like uncle or something like that, that you would just not, you'd see him in a dive bar and you would, you'd be like, this guy's not shit, dude. Like I'm going to take this guy's girl right now. And then the next thing, you know, his lanky freckled ass is laying you out over the fucking bar and then just stealing the bottle of whiskey. Nobody's and then you turn around him. and you see his back and you realize his shoulders and his whole wide is built like a heavyweight. And you're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> the dude was a blacksmith, man. He came. Yeah. Like he was a beast. All right. Like, he apprenticed as a blacksmith yeah. when he was like a teenager. So, I mean, like he looked funky. Yeah. But then if you actually got past the freckles, dude, he was, he was built. And trust me, man, as a blacksmith, I'm sure he got a few, you know, quite a few dustups in his time over there. Cause what else were they doing in their pastimes? Yeah, for sure. Well, and it was clear, you know, he could fight. You know, everybody, everybody knew he could fight. Oh, yeah, man, he, he could trash talk too. Totally. But to keep in line with these heavyweights, another dude. I wouldn't say he was so much of a trash talker, but when he wanted to get insulting, he was really vicious with it. But that was Larry Holmes. That's a that's a good one. That's true because it's like he was he didn't always trash talk, but if you pissed him off, yeah, he was he really like gonna go him, off. Man. Yeah, if he didn't like you, he would really say what was on his mind. And I'll give you a couple of examples. I can't, for our first one, a lot of people might not know this. He had a vendetta against a light heavyweight champion at the time, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. Um, I'm not going to repeat exactly what was quoted in the Ring magazine for this article because it's a lot of it is actually, you know, very vulgar. But and back then, you know, Ring magazine came Well, magazines in general were a lot, were a lot more loose in what they were able to print. So yeah. I'll just leave it at that. But uh, one thing he did say, among other things, about how he felt about Eddie Mustafa Muhammad was, because um, this was around, remember now, to, to take this into context, this was around 1980. It's 1979, you know, 1979, 1980. So this was around like the, uh, the Iran hostage situation. Larry Holmes says that they should have taken those, he said that they should have taken Eddie Mustafa Muhammad and sent him to Iran and given us the hostages back because no one cares about Eddie and people actually miss the hostages. <laughs> like, Jesus, dude. God damn. And seriously, and that's what I said, among other things. I, like I said, I'm not going to repeat what he said another like that. Go back and find the magazine because it's all in there. But um, not only was Larry Holmes like, a, like you know, kind of can be really vicious with his trash talking, but I mean, he, was, he was a bitter guy, man. He felt a lot of injustices in his career. He was obviously an Ali's shadow. Um, he wanted to respect as a heavyweight champion, but he never really felt he was getting it. Um, Ali was still really much in the limelight early on in his title reign before they eventually fought, which Holmes was pissed off about because every time Holmes had a fight in Vegas, Ali was there for another function and Ali always took the spotlight. And so who wants to see Larry Holmes against Ozzy Ocasio? Who wants to see Larry Holmes against Alfredo Evangelista? You know, who wants to see Larry Holmes against Lorenzo Zanon? Um, these were just middling contenders at the time. Ali's going to be in town pulling a magic trick act or appearing in some play or doing something else or whatever. Everyone's going to go gravitate to that. Holmes is pissed off. I'm the champion. Blah, blah, blah. Finally, things boil over when, Holmes, when um, Ali 
loses, uh, no, excuse me, when Holmes beats Scott Ledoux and Ali made an appearance over there and just went absolutely wild and it became a crazy scene. So they fight after that. And Holmes now is even more disliked now because look, he just beat the heavyweight. He beat Ali. You know, you beat the hero. Everyone's yeah, it's the, like, it's the, the double-edged sword. It's like, you know, oh, it's, yeah, it's the passing of the torch, but then like they fucking hate you because they did, you, you did them in like Marciano and Lewis, you know? Absolutely. But like Marciano was still like a humble guy that was easy to like. Holmes was still kind of bitter and complaining about a lot of injustices happening and kind of demanding for him to get attention. So it was like, he never really was going to get that. And then after he beats Ali, who's on the scene now, Jerry Cooney. Now Holmes has a legitimate gripe because Cooney is being pushed because he's, you know, a white heavyweight who's knocking the shit out of everybody. So, you know, Holmes, who still really isn't popular, has to contend with that. Now he is running his mouth a lot. What he's going to do to Cooney, I'm going to do this, I'm going to knock him out. Holmes was very vocal before that fight, rightfully so, because, you know, the way things were going on, but like, he was the one that was like really like trying to push and do things. And a couple of times he tried to attack Cooney. You know, there was that melee after the Leon yep. Spinks fight where Hol- where um Howard Cosell suffered a bloody lip because Holmes went after him and they almost brawled in a couple other times. Like Holmes was a feisty dude. So fast forward though, through after all, you know, him being bitter. Now during his second career, Holmes wasn't, you know, he did trash talk a little bit, but it was more having fun in the ring. I'll give you a perfect example. In the Evander Holyfield fight, he arguably had a better fight than George Foreman did. Like, Foreman had his moments, and that was a fun one. But Holmes legitimately gave Foreman, um, Holyfield fits, especially early on. Because Holmes was, you know, was just really experienced. And so I think it was round two or so. Holmes, as he liked to do, he lay in the corner and just kind of let you come at him. He would counter you off the corner with uppercuts and other things like that. And he was still really good at doing that. That's how he beat Ray Mercer and a few others. Like, Holmes was brilliant. And... Holyfield fell for the trap and Holmes was catching him. Bah, 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 right. Lou Duver and George Benching are going wild ringside because they're like, you know, freaking out because Holmes is, they know Holmes is in the zone now and Holyfield's falling for it. And this is going to be a difficult night. Immediately after the round, Lou Duver gets on the apron all pissed off and he's yelling at Holmes because Holmes is just sitting there relaxing. And then Holmes looks at him and goes like this and taps him on his head like a little kid patting it, you know, like he patted it like a, a little kid. You remember that part? Yeah. He goes, he sits there and goes, pop, pop, pop. And Duver starts fuming even more. <laughs> yeah, like he was the biggest hothead on the face of the planet, dude. Totally. Lou totally. Duva would start rolling around like through people and shit like that to get at somebody. And then they sat Holyfield down and were screaming at him, do not fall for his traps. What are you doing? Like you're fighting his fight now. This is what he wants to do. Like, blah, 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 you know, and obviously Holyfield ended up winning and, excuse me, Larry Holmes ended up puking everywhere immediately after the fight. But... <laughs> Still, it, you know, I thought Holmes would be an interesting one to bring up. No, he is, dude, because he just, he, his career spanned such a long time and he stayed Larry Holmes pretty much the entire time, dude, all the way up to the fucking Butterbean fight, man. <laughs> the fucking Butterbean fight. I bet you he still has a jet today if necessary to throw on. I'm not trying to find out. Yeah, right. I'm definitely not trying to find out. But you mentioned, you know, Muhammad Ali, and we can't have the greatest trash talk of all time, you know, without talking about Muhammad Ali. Um, And Larry Holmes used to be a regular sparring partner for Muhammad Ali. And then, as you just mentioned, later defeated Muhammad Ali. But all the way from the early 1960s, before he was even a champion, that was primarily how the Louisville Lip got famous. You know, he was the Louisville Lip 
or uh, a number of writers started calling him Gaseous Cassius because uh, he was always, I guess, you know, spewing gas, I guess they would say, or whatever kind of fucking weird lingo that is from the 1960s. But yeah, there was a, a handful of other nicknames that they gave Muhammad Ali because he was so loud and always talk, talking so much shit. And uh, yeah. Where did he get that from? Professional wrestling. Yep, he got it from Gorgeous George. Uh, yeah. Was primarily, he said, uh, somebody who inspired him to become like a heel and start like playing the crowd in that way. Wh whoever the crowd was, whether it was reporters or an actual crowd, and also on top of that, you know, I mean, pro wrestling just in general probably uh, does not get nearly enough credit for the influence that it had over a number of the fighters and like that style overall, because pro wrestling is something that's thought of as like, oh, yeah, it's gotten popular in the last few decades. But pro wrestling has been around for a long, it's long, been long very time popular for a long, long, long time. To the point where the ring used to have a section for pro wrestling in the back that was substantial, like, you know, like yeah. 20 pages, man, maybe not that long, like 15, but still a substantial <laughs> pro wrestling section. And so in any event, Muhammad Ali said that he had picked up this kind of heel playing to the crowd stuff from a number of pro wrestlers, specifically Gorgeous George. Totally. And Ali was one of those guys, man, like you said, bro, he was one of the first fighters out there that started predicting what round he was going to knock guys out in and absolutely doing it. Um, started dubbing certain fighters with, you know, nicknames before their fight. Floyd Patterson was the rabbit. Chavalo, the washerwoman, you know, suddenly listing the big ugly bear. But it, with all the trash talking that he did, people didn't really still take him seriously. I mean, like, he had built up a pretty good, you know, career at that point, credibility-wise, like, but I mean, he had beaten an H and Archie Moore. He went life and death with um, Doug Jones, which wasn't, you know, not a bad thing, but Jones was a guy he was expected to be pretty comprehensively. Um, you know, he'd be some other fighters up to that point, but no one yeah. thought that he would be ready to fight Sonny Liston. Well, and, and also, you, I'm sorry, but you did miss one, the Henry Cooper fight, too. Absolutely. That was whined about for a while. That's still whined about from the British fans, bro. You, If I post a photo of that fight, dude, they're just like... <sighs> I was I was watching um, the fascinating documentary, probably my favorite one because it's not really on Ali. It's called Facing Ali. Yeah, and that's that is one of the only ones in like semi recent years that I really enjoyed. Because it's not really centered on Ali; it's centered on Ali's opponents. And unfortunately, almost all the guys featured on that whole film are dead, with the, the exception, I think, of Larry Holmes. But Cooper was one of the early guys on it. And, you know, when they talk about that, Cooper talks about how he sets it up, right? And he shows you, he's like, yeah, I fainted. Ali did a thing. When I fainted again, he's like, that's when I come with the left. And that's when usually when they go down, I hit Ali and I saw his eyes go up. I knew it. <laughs> and that's when Ali exactly went. And, and he could really hit. Cooper? He, oh, yeah. He had, a, he had a huge left hook. He absolutely obliterated a dude named Joe Erskine, who was a top-level British heavyweight but like, I mean, on the British scene, Henry Cooper, there was no question that he was like heads and, you know, shoulders, the best British heavyweight. It was just that there were other on the world level, you know, in America, there were a number of really, really good fighters that he just couldn't get, quite get past because his fucking skin I mean, could not hold like up. Tissue paper. I think that every single loss he had was for cuts. I believe yeah. every single loss he had. 
which is like 11 or something like that. And they were like ghastly ridiculous. cuts too, man. Like they were nasty. Well, not every single loss. I mean, he lost to Joe Bugner by a very controversial decision. That that was his last fight. Or I should say every stoppage loss. Yeah, stoppage yeah, yeah, totally. Like he got gashed up badly. And you've seen the photos, man. Just the blood streaming down. Like his eyeball looked like it was about yeah. to fall out. Yeah, man, it, it was really bad. But like... So if you've never seen that documentary, please got to it's it's pretty awesome. But um yeah, from all those different fights. So like when you went when you went up against Liston, man, no one had really seen someone like people thought Ali was crazy because of how much he was shit talking Liston before that fight. You know what I mean? Like no one had ever done that. They were like he might have been out of his mind, you know, and they took his blood pressure before him. It was like um his heart rate was like something absolutely wild. And they were almost about to stop the fight because they were like, oh, this guy's off his rocker. Like, he can't fight. Like, he's crazy. But then everything came down. But he actually spooked Liston. You know, of all things, Liston was like, didn't really know how to take him. And then Ali put on the performance of a lifetime that no one expected and dominated him. But with all of his talk and everything like that, man, it took a while for America to, you know, really adjust and end up liking him. It, after the exile, that's when they really accepted him. Before that, they hated him. Yeah, there was it. Um yeah I, I think that that's a lot of it the the political situation the social yeah. uh si situation that was going on definitely inspired uh, a large chunk of the american population in particular to support his cause and then therefore become a fan of his oh. i'm sorry go ahead I was just going to say, and then the opposite effect was for the other part of the population who really fucking hated him and, you know, just wanted to see him fail. Go ahead. America was still pretty conservative in the 60s, even though, like, you know, the revolution mm -hmm. and flower, all that stuff was going on, especially right. when Ali came on the scene around 64. And so for him to, like, reject the war and then become a part of the Nation of Islam, which was still, like, whoa. Yeah, like... Black Panthers, holy shit. Yeah, like anything yeah, yeah, that yeah. had to do with, you know, black empowerment was like, whoa. And yeah, America was still like kind of was like conservative and like much more mellow and suburban and all that type of stuff. They weren't ready for any of that. And they're just kind of like, oh my God, is this another Jack Johnson or what's going on here? And people are just kind of like freaked out by the whole thing. And like I said, after the exile, after the Vietnam War and everything else going on and Ali's now able to come back, and I mean, no, still being more still going on, excuse me, like Ali's able to come back and all this other stuff. And like, it, you know, it's a whole different America now. Now it's like, you know, a revolutionary America. People are seeing things in a different light and all that. And now they're seeing Ali as a hero as opposed to being, you know, the villain as he was in the 60s. But still, his trash talking, if not anything, probably got worse. It got more vile. Like he treated, he treated Floyd Patterson really badly. Um, not only did he trash talk him really badly before that fight, he viewed Patterson as like, you know, white America's like conservative champion. And Patterson did come from a different era, even though they weren't that far apart in, you know, in terms of eras and ages or whatever, Patterson still was from a different time. Ali was from the future generation of what was happening. And Patterson absolutely resented the black um, nation of Islam, hated everything. He said that publicly in papers and wanted to take the title back to America and yada, yada, yada. Ali took that personally, not only talking smack about him, but as you saw in the ring, he tortured him, man. Anytime he could have stopped it, he prolonged it and beat him up more. Um, yeah. It was like it was like Ali took uh, particular interest in punishing anybody who, who had spoken out of, against any of his views, whether it was changing his name, 
or you know fighters who still refer you know insisted on calling him clay whether it was fighters who questioned whether or not he should have gone to vietnam uh the nation of islam i mean any any sort of any facet of like any viewpoints that muhammad ali had ever espoused any potential opponents who had ever questioned those it was like he took a particular interest in being an ass to him you know like you said he had called uh called him the rabbit like he said after i get the bear i'm gonna get the hair yeah you know <laughs> stuff like that and you know he, he just and and on top of that uh just kind of going back to what, what we talked about earlier floyd patterson was somebody who was more or less i mean especially compared to Sonny Liston and then Muhammad Ali embraced by white America compared to them for sure. But just look at that first round. Ali doesn't barely even throws a punch. I'm not even sure if he throws a punch, but that was like a way of just torturing Patterson already because he didn't have to do a single thing, but he showed that he was in control the entire time. And that must've been some of the most torturous stuff to like even realize because you're out there and you realize Ali's not doing anything. He faints faints, dances some more, just moves, blah, blah, blah. He's not doing a single thing, but he's just showing you that he has everything under control and that Patterson can't do anything to him. And he couldn't. So. Well, I mean, it's just, it was such a bad style for Floyd too. Like he's like not a big heavyweight by any means. And really all he's got is like, he's, he has good power, but is constantly having to punch up at Muhammad Ali, who's just faster, you know, a better puncher, flows better with his offense etc cetera, etc cetera. you know he was he was behind it dude he couldn't get over it but yeah i'll give you I me mean, you know what's really funny too is that years late a few years ago uh, you know that show pawn stars yeah yeah they someone brought in a couple of tickets from i think this the ali patterson one and i think maybe the second fight two or something and that dumbass rick the guy that hosted it he yeah. was like oh yeah man these were two of the greatest vegas fights ever you know this was like the classic stuff yeah dude well and i guess it's it i don't know about all that but funnily enough floyd patterson definitely does figure into the history of fights in vegas along with sonny liston i mean oh totally i mean it just but i don't remember them being anything exciting or being all that really competitive no, no <laughs> so. not particularly competitive and more i guess hyped than anything but but no that guy they would they say all sorts of crazy shit dude they don't have oh i mean they tried to they had an ibf title belt that they said was leon spinks one time so there's that um they're uh they say some crazy shit when the boxing stuff does come up which is not that that often i see on that show but since we're on the subject of ali we should talk about one of his opponents who could kind of match him in the uh, trash talking department except he wasn't american so it might have been a little bit hard for you to understand him that's true, dude. Uh, that's a good point. And thank you for allowing me a little segue to plug my book, dude. Hell yeah. <laughs> no, uh, Oscar Bonavena, for sure, was definitely... I would say that if trash talk is about pissing off your opponent, if trash talk is about needling an opponent and uh, being kind of malicious, too, a lot of the time, definitely Oscar Bonavena was, one, was up there, dude. Uh, the most famous example, of course, being the the Muhammad Ali fight and all the stuff that he said before the fight and at the weigh-in. And uh, I think it was the physical, uh, the inspection, you know, the, the health inspection or whatever, the pre-fight physical. But he, overall, his breadth of trash talk, it's wide. It's very wide. 
and I guess uh, an, one way to get a decent example of that would be to check out my book, Shot at a Brothel, The Spectacular Demise of Oscar Ringo Bonavena. But even so, there was a ton of shit that I did not include in the book for a number of reasons. Like I won't get into the editing process and like give it away or whatever, but basically there was a lot of stuff that he said and did that I did not include just because getting into it would be like, it would be too much of an interruption of the flow of the story. Cause I wasn't talking about that necessarily. Like I kind of was, but there was, he just did so much shit. It's all like, it was, it would have interrupted like, you know, the flow, but yeah, the, he, like I was mentioning before, kneeled Ali about not going to Vietnam. Why you no go? Why you no go? You chicken, chicken, peep, 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 chicken. And I think that part of it was Ali, like when he finally understood what he was saying. And then on top of that, he was just like annoyed because he's going peep, 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 yeah. with his, like, like with his hand. And like, a, it's the type of shit like an older brother would do. I don't know if anybody is anybody listening or watching has ever had an older brother, but the type of shit where it's like, they know precisely what is going to get you going and they're doing it. And that's exactly what Oscar Bonavena was doing to Ali. So, I mean, he did it to a number of fighters, though. He was also a headache behind the scenes, too. Like, you weren't sure if he was actually going to fight until he was actually in the ring. He was known, um, Teddy Brenner, who wrote an excellent book in the uh, late 80s called um, Only the Ring Was Square. And he talks, he spends a little bit of time talking about Bonavena and his dealings with him and has a couple of stories about him. I think... uh, Bonavena would say, oh, you know, but like literally he'd be across the street at the garden and Brennan would be like, where's he at? Oh, Oscar's sick. He said he hurt his back or something. Can't get out of bed. Wait, what? Oh yeah, he's over there. And then he'd run over across the house, you know, across the street, run up to the thing. There'd be Bonavena in bed laying up there with the sheets covered up him, something like that. And saying that he can't get out of bed unless they get certain more money, then maybe he'll start feeling better. And Brennan would lose it, figure out something to trick them because they weren't that smart on there. And even though they thought Bonavino and his team thought they were being slick, and um, yeah, you know, and, he'd get and back there, would, there would be times when he would do and say shit like that too. But it was like it was, it was tough for him to hide like the smirk on his face. Yeah, yeah, he would have a tough time hiding that, like you know, he's trying to get one over on you, and he knew what the fuck he was doing, totally. and. A lot of the time, a lot of the stuff that he did and said was pretty harmless. Like he was just kind of like shit talking, like they're not a good fighter, you know, like I'm gonna I'm gonna knock him out or I'm gonna do this to him, that type of stuff. But there were a number of times, like for instance, he did it to both Ali and Joe Frazier. Uh what he would do actually he did it to a number of black opponents, but Ali and Joe Frazier most prominently, he would lean in and he would sniff and he would go, Phew you stink <laughs> and he and he i never heard or read or saw him do it to any other non-black or non-dark-skinned opponents mm-hmm. and so joe fraser actually talked about it in his autobiography too i i couldn't quote it but paraphrasing it he said something to the effect of when they had met that like it was for the weigh-in i think for the first fight and that he had, uh, you know, they gotten into the same room and Oscar Bonavena said something like, oh, you need a bath, you stink. And Joe Frazier's remarked, like, he was trying to say, Joe Frazier stinks, what the fuck? You know, because he was like saying like exasperated, but yeah, he even yeah, yeah. called out like, you know, I think it was kind of like a racial type of thing with Oscar, but he was Probably. just crazy, you know, that he was just, he, 
everybody dismissed him as crazy. Pretty much everybody. Because he was. He did crazy shit pretty frequently. Well, question for you, though, quickly before we move to a, another guy. Um, do you think that had he not passed away when he did, um, do you think his career was over? Or do you think that like he would have worked with Don King and ended up, I don't know, you know, part of that late, late 70s scene? That's a, well, that's a pretty good question. I think that he was, his career was probably like on the downside enough because he was having a tough time getting back into good physical shape. He didn't look super great in his last fight specifically. He didn't yeah. look good against um, uh, Ron Lyle. He didn't mm -hmm. look particularly good against Ron Lyle. And then his last fight was uh, like Alonzo Johnson. Billy Joyner. Billy Joyner, sorry. Yeah, he, it, that was the one in Reno. Mm -hmm. And Billy Joyner gave him a surprisingly bad time. Um, and so a lot of people were uh, a lot of people were surprised by how bad he looked. You know, he wasn't training very well. So I guess the if if he had gotten back into shape, you know what I mean? Like if he had managed to actually yeah. get back into shape, possibly. But so much of his game was like, you know, mauling and pushing fighters around and stuff like that. And the fighter that they were trying to aim him toward, they were trying to aim him toward two fighters, Ken Norton and George Foreman. And it's like, I just don't know that those were great styles for him at that time. Ken Foreman would have absolutely just uh, that would have been bad. Bad. Well, that's another thing too is he kept calling George Foreman a gorilla. He called George Foreman gorilla for like years. Like anytime they brought George Foreman up, like he was like, "Y'all yeah, fight that gorilla," and it was like, "The fuck, bro." But then, um, you know, they were also yeah. George Foreman would have just absolutely smashed him. Dude, because his style would have been so bad. Foreman would have speared him with his jab. He would have came in and Foreman would have ripped his head off with an uppercut and then skull thumped him with one of his overhand rights. It would, yeah. And and at that time, George Foreman was not afraid of like, you know, the way that he did like uh, Jose Roman. Yeah. Like yeah. it was just, he was not afraid of like getting dirty or just really beating the shit. Or even like post Ali, Foreman was a little weird. Like there's, there's few fights after that. But yeah. when he really got into a rhythm, man, he dude would just like look at his fight with dino dennis all right like the lay he has dennis on the ropes and he's just going over and over it doesn't even look like he's doing it powerfully but it's just and you see the dude's head just going all over the place like a spear and just yeah. knocking him around and it's just brutal That's the kind of shit that just demonstrates how heavy his hands were because he doesn't even, like, look swinging. like he's, so, he's just effortless yeah. with him. he's just he's, he's not even swinging it just looks bro, like he's just he's yeah, just kind man. of like swinging an axe but not even really you know he's just like i got a lot of swings to go so i'm just taking yeah. it easy you know, and and motherfuckers were just like, wow, like holy shit. Everywhere, heads just spinning and going and wild. At that rate, dude, yeah. I mean, uh, at that rate, I think that Foreman would have smashed the shit out of him. And Ken Norton was in good form in the mid six or in mid seventies. Yeah. So th that was, you know, would have been about a year and a half, two years before he fought Larry Holmes, which was a fantastic fight and would have been his last hurrah, I guess. But you know, nonetheless, he still would have been in okay form at that time. But also, uh, I mean, this would have been before, like, if you're talking about when Bonavita potentially could have fought him, this was around when Norton, like, wrecked Dwayne Bobbitt, probably. Yeah. So, and, and, like, yeah, Norton was in at that point. Yeah. Norton was, like, knocking it. Norton was looking really good in 75. Yeah. And, and the only other thing, the last point, and I do kind of talk about this just barely in my book, but it was another thing that I would have gotten into a little bit more had I had more 
page space was I kind of suspect that Bonavena got fairly badly concussed by Muhammad Ali. And I think that now that we know, and I mean like, well, people might be like, so what? Well, now that we know about CTE, now that we know what those kinds of things, uh, excuse me, what fairly bad concussions can do to fighters, not just fighters, to anybody's brain, to Mm -hmm. any athlete's brain when they're not given proper rest and stuff like that. Anyway, I won't get into it too much, but I suspect that too. And if that's true, then no, probably not. Totally. But right. as far as trash talk, he definitely, like I said, if it's about getting under opponent's skin, he's good at it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like this next dude, I'll just mention him really briefly because there's not a lot to talk about, but Jorge Luis Gonzalez. <laughs> definitely got to bow. That's that's what I mean. You know, he like when he came on the scene, he was a part of the, the whole Cuban team from the well, he was a part of the ever considered whether or not Riddick Bowe was just pissed off at his fucking flappy mullet. <laughs> that is one of the worst hairstyles in boxing history. It has to be right up there, bro. Like was he was bald and then he just had that flappy thing of hair on the back that made no sense. And it just looked ridiculous. I mean, he had a good beard, but like other than that, it was just the, that thing on the back. So but Gonzalez came on the scene from what was that? Say like the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, had a lot of amateur pedigree from that, you know, from being from the Cuban team back then. I think did he beat Teofilo Stevenson? I Not sure, he but he did beat Riddick Bowe. That's that's for damn sure. Yeah, well, he was a massive, uh, you know, uh, Cuban prospect, and I know that yeah. he beat somebody. It might have was it. You might be right. He did know beat that- well, and I think that you might be right about Stevenson because he beat somebody in the amateurs that was like, oh, shit, you know, like, here's this big, like, he's like a prodigy, like, in, like uh, when he was coming up, like, as uh, just coming into the pros, I mean, like, that was one of his kind of, like, selling points is that he had defeated so-and-so as an amateur. Yeah. So I don't think it was Bo because at that point that wouldn't have been, you know. A thing. Well, he did, he did beat Bo as an amateur. Hold up. I'm actually going to look it up because I'm kind of curious. I'm almost positive. I'm almost positive. If it wasn't Stevenson and it was somebody else like famous. Let's see. Does he have his amateur career? Oh, there it is. Yeah, God damn. Just bless box rec, dude. Yeah, seriously. They have everything. <laughs> so he did beat Bo. And Gilbert Pierce, that was another name. And he had a he had a very I know Bo was the main name. I don't see Stevenson here. I thought they might have beaten him, but um so since he beat Bo as an amateur, I mean Bo again, like he made it to the finals of the Olympics, had a very, you know, prestigious amateur career himself. Uh there's a couple of names there that he ended up fighting as, you know, one that he was supposed to fight as a pro, Lennox Lewis, and then um, Gonzalez, but Gonzalez, after he turned pro, one of the defects after defecting, um, he was featured pre, you know, predominantly uh, early on on television. It wasn't on HBO or nothing, but I mean, you know, he was a heavyweight that was on the rise that a lot of people thought. Um, one of his fights, I remember against um, the faded version of um, Ronaldo Snipes was uh, one of those really brutal ones where he could have stopped it a lot earlier, but he kind of prolonged it, beat the hell out of Snipes until he was a bloody mess at the end. So Gonzalez had a lot of had a lot of stuff going for him at this point. Bo 
was kind of like an influx. He was struggling. Like he hadn't really put on too many good performances since um, losing the title to Holyfield. Sure, he had beat Holyfield in that rubber match, but he was dropped in that fight. He looked like shit against Larry Donald, Buster Mathis Jr., so on. So this was like a fight that a lot of people were looking forward to. I knew nothing about this. was still in the infancy of my um, fandom, but Gonzalez was a big talker. Reminded me of a lot of loudmouth wrestlers and the way he was going before the fight. You know, and Bo was pissed off enough that Bo, you know, resurged himself and looked amazing in that fight. Put on one of the best performances of his career, man. He beat the absolute hell out of Gonzalez in that fight. Yeah, and it was like <clears throat> fighters had all, <clears throat> excuse me, had already started getting like taller or whatever, but he was also like 6'6 or something like that. So that was another big thing with him was that he was like this big, skilled heavyweight. He could really hit, but he could box too because he's got the Cuban pedigree. So like that was the that was one of the things. But man, Bo, Bo wasn't having it. No, nah, man, not at all. And Bo just whooped him. Like that wasn't, that's, that was one of his best performances. That actually knocked him out, man. The way he knocked him out, that was like, and after he stopped him, man, Gonzalez's career completely fell apart after that. Like, soon after that, um, a year later, he was featured on against Tim Witherspoon that night where they had the triple heavyweight fights. Um, yeah. Holyfield, Bobby Chez, Lennox Lewis against Ray Mercer. And, dude, Tim Witherspoon with that overhand right of his, God bless him, just chopped the shit out of Gonzalez. Just, oh, in that last sequence, just boom, boom, boom. And then you see Gonzalez just dropping a heap. And after that, man, he, he became a journeyman. Every heavyweight worth a scratch at that point, from Michael Grant to Joe Macy, Wolf Graham, Alex Stewart, everyone took a turn, you know, beating the hell out of him. So How the mighty fall, man. How the mighty fall. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Trash talk. Well, right around the same time, too. We'll just start kind of like shotgunning these. But right around the same time, James Tony. Oh, yeah, yeah, Tony. I mean, like, right around the same time in the 90s is when I think he, the early 90s is when he really started kind of becoming more prominent as a fighter. And, like, uh, you know, he was busy, but and he stayed on TV, but when he really started making his way, like, to HBO was, I think, mm -hmm. when, uh, was when he's, his star power started picking up. And he obviously had always been a trash talker, always been somebody who was quick to be, like, you know, I'll whoop his ass too. I don't give a fuck. You know, like in, in post fight interviews, he just didn't totally. give a shit, dude. Who was it? Um, who was it who called him out? Um, Tyrone Price. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things. He said, Man, bring your ass, Tyrone. We can get busy right now. <laughs> yeah, dude. Just bad, bad decision. Bad Tyrone decision. Yeah, and that was on Tuesday night fights. That, that was the type of thing where they would allow that too. They like, they welcomed that type of chaos. Yeah, dude, they loved it. <laughs> But it was like, but James Tony is the type of guy who's like, he will fight you on the mm -hmm. spot. So don't, because he's from Antarctica. No, he still swung on everybody, man. I, I Where was it? I think after the second Sam Peter fight, or the first one, whatever it was, where he said he wanted to fight after, um, after he lost the fight in the interviews. Hey, what are you going to do next? Oh, man, I'm still going at it. I want Klitschko and his sister. <laughs> Dude, yeah, even throughout the 2000s. I remember on the, so I've mentioned this before, but I'll be brief, Max Boxing Forums. I used to do some chats and shit with some of yeah. the fighters. And on one of the fucking chats, he referred to Chris Chris Bird's wife, Tracy Bird, as Piggy Smalls. <laughs> Jesus. 
I thought him and Chris Byrne might have been cool. You know, the whole Michigan thing. <laughs> I mean, well, I I guess I, I think it was just at the time he was calling out anybody. Like he was talking shit about Antonio Tarver because it was right around the time. It was like about a year after member Hopkins and Tony on the cover of the ring and they were supposed yes. to fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And then, and then uh, uh, HBO wouldn't pony up the extra money. money. They they got like eight million together or something like that, just off the top of my head. And they were like, "Now nah, we're gonna need more than that. Like we're gonna need four million more because we're about to split that." And HBO wouldn't do it, so they wouldn't put the fight together. But it was like a little bit after that fight, and so or after that fight fell through, Tony was talking shit about Klitschko. He was talking shit about Roy Jones. He's talking shit about uh, uh, <clears throat> Tarver. He's talking, dude, he was just like picking out every, he's talking shit about uh, John Ruiz before he fought him. Like he was literally just like picking names out of a hat, didn't give a shit. He was calling people like inventing names and fucking slogans and shit for him off the cuff. Like he didn't care, dude. I love James. Got it. <laughs> it was hilarious. And then Danny Green called him pig boy and grunted at him in sparring. <laughs> that, that got him <laughs> mad enough to say he was going to go get his gun. <laughs> I remember that, man, because Tony was the ultimate shit talker and sparring, wasn't he? Just when all he was beating you up, he kept on running his mouth and talking, yep. talking, talking, man. Yep. Uh, and Danny Green was like, it wasn't even like Danny Green was beating him or anything. It was just that he was like, he was holding his Green own. Was getting whooped. Yeah, Green was getting a little whooped up. I mean, Tony wasn't going full on with him. He was no, no, no. Yeah, yeah like like it, it looked kind of like the Jirov fight, like where he, yeah, was, totally. he was putting in a lot of work, but it like not a lot was landing. And he was like calling him pig boy or piggy or something like that. And and so James Tony was getting all pissed off because Green was trash talking him. Do you remember? Um, I think when uh, the last round of the Giroff fight, right before the last round, when um, when uh, Freddie Roach, Freddie Roach tells James Tony, he was like, James Miller, it's really close. You got to drop him on his ass really quick now. You got to do it. And you see Tony, and Tony just responds, he goes, Whoa. Fuck. That's what he said. He goes, fuck, like he's all pissed off about it. And then he actually does that at the end of it. <laughs> it's like, fine, fine. If I'm going to have to dial it up to 10, fine. God the way he, man, it. it was so beautiful. And that's and that remains one of my all-time favorite rounds. Like, I love Gotti Ward round nine and a couple others. But like that, that sequence near the end, the way Tony sets it up when, when Giroff gets hurt. Giroff is hurt. Oh, oh, oh my God. And then you hear him like, I, I remember watching that with a friend and I remember getting so hyped from Manny's call that we were like grabbing each other's shoulders and like, ah, to be honest, bro. I think he got more hyped about that round than he did with Gotti Ward round nine, because like he almost felt like, oh my God. Yeah. He only, you know, he had a certain like connection with James, like when, you know, James trained that Kronk back in the day and like worked there and all that, like sparred there. So to yeah, see when he fight, fighter, yeah, yeah, yeah. To see James hurt him at the end doing just classic stuff that like a Kronk fighter would do, just got Emmanuel all tingly. <laughs> he was like, you and like the way, like this finishing sequence, hit him with that right hand to the body. Oh, he's almost there, boom! And then that last punch, pop, and Jira finally drops, toughest guy on the planet, finally goes down. And he hears, Yeah, the, the going, dude, they drop into it, got him down. <laughs> They dropped him off in the middle of a Siberian lake and was like, swim to shore. And they're like, part of his training regimen is they tie yeah. stakes to him and make him run down a hallway from hungry dogs. Mostly. Hungry dogs, yo. Single pass shit, man. <laughs> what? 
they're different, man. They do shit differently in Siberia. That's all I can say. And James Tony took it to this fool. Yeah, there's few things better in boxing to, you know, unite the hardcore fans than Manny Stewart losing his shit, bro. Like, you Rest know, in peace, man. Never be turn and fight him. You'd fight this motherfucker. You'd be... Any, so, whether it was in the corner, fucking yeah. love the guy. And you know what? He was just a people person, man. If you knew him, even if he didn't know you, he would talk to anybody. That's he would true, talk dude. to anybody. So many and you enthusiastically do it too. Yeah. So many stories of him having like like five drinks over three hours for just the most like random person. It's some fucking bar. Well, anything. Any in, like, Indianapolis after the fights, or you know, I mean it's like fucking crazy. And he would just sit there and just chat and be really happy and jovial to chat with you. Like he knew you for years, man. And ah oh, man, just one of those guys, dude. You know what I mean? Like Steve Farhood put it best when I told him one time, I probably said this on the show, but like I told him one time, I was like, man, you know, you, you met Ray Arcel and you met this person and that one and whatever. And he was like, well, think about this, man. He was like, in a couple of decades, people will be telling you the same thing about Emmanuel Stewart. And I was like, you're totally right. Wow. Didn't think of it that way. Yeah, well, and we'll be talking about him too. Oh, yeah. Hood, you know, well, we already do. I mean, you know, yeah, we already do. I'm very lucky to know him. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. A legend. So, but that was just, you know, it's cool shit like that. Like Manny, yeah. But um, the last thing I'm going to bring up look, there's a few names that we could have talked about. There's Camacho, obviously, there's Floyd Mayweather, who's the ultimate trash talker of the modern era, um, Vinny Pazienza, Greg Haugen, we've talked about recently, but like, Last dude who I want to give some shine to because everybody seems to hate him on boxing Twitter is Nassim Ahmed. <laughs> Man, every, it's like, <clears throat> I'm sorry to bring this up in relation to me posting things, but for me, it's like, that's a really gauge, a really good gauge of like fan reaction to a yeah. lot of these fighters and situations. Every single time, dude, like the first comment without fail, Barrera, I'm like, God, dude, he had a whole other career, bro. Fuck. Like, and he wasn't as like, and he wasn't as like um, overrated as people try to like. For whatever reason, this modern era, people think that Nassim Hamed and Ricardo Lopez are the most overrated fighters ever, and I don't get it. Like, yeah. especially Lopez. Hamed, you want to make a slight? Well, no, Hamed is not overrated at all. No one really seems to like have favorable reviews on him now. I'm the exception. I'm not going to say he Pretty was an all-time great. And that's it. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to say he was an all-time great or anything, but I'm going to give him his place, man. Hamed was a bad man in his time, during his time. He really, really was. I'm right? And that was a stacked division. Like he wasn't fighting cupcakes back then, bro. He was fighting really legit dudes yeah. and stretching everybody. He's obviously, he's obviously vulnerable. vulnerable. Like, nobody's saying he's not. Mm -hmm. But, like, but yeah, he gets really undersold now. Totally, man. I'm sorry. And a lot of these guys today, he he stretch a few of them. Ahmed in his prime was was trouble. He had fast hands. He had one punch knockout power that no one had seen at featherweight, possibly ever at that point. And just you know, a nightmare style. And yeah, a nightmare style. I mean, like, sure, he could get hit. He was awkward. He was able to be dropped because of his like you know clumsiness sometimes. But if he really put it together and was like taking shit seriously, yeah, man, he was a nightmare. But that being said his trash talking was some next level stuff, man, because like he had an accent, he was short. You know, really knew how to take him. Spock out. Yeah. Madison square garden. 
knock you out. You can't do nothing with me, blah, blah, blah. Like, and he was just so over the top too, man. So like the, um, <clears throat> the MSG, for instance, like you just said, Madison Square Garden, when he fought Kevin Kelly, another yeah, notorious yeah. trash talker, you know, too bad that wasn't around during the Twitter era because you know, I wasn't living out there because I would have loved to attend that fight. You know, MSG was probably rocking that night. And um, beforehand, you see, like, both of those guys jawjacking, going back and forth, back and forth. But they found out they actually liked each other. Like, they were having fun the way they were talking shit to each other. You can see, like, they were competitive and they were getting spicy and fiery. But, like, it was almost in good fun. Like, the Kevin Kelly said that he liked the Prince. Prince, I guess, said they liked Kevin Kelly. They respected each other. They were just both loud. Yeah, it didn't seem mean-spirited or anything, yeah. Totally not. But you got the full... The, this was America's first time seeing how men like this because... He had been featured on Showtime before this. We've talked about his fights on Showtime. He was on Man- against Manuel Medina and um, Daniel Alisea were both on Showtime. Tom Johnson as well. But, well, this is his first time now. Madison Square Garden, his American debut. Kevin Kelly's a well-known commodity at, like, HBO, which at the time, a lot of people were watching HBO as opposed to Showtime. And this was, like, the big scene. So, like, when he has that whole entrance... And the way he's coming out, they had the whole pre-fight thing where you said he's doing his whole thing. Oh, yeah, I knock everybody out. I'm this and that and blah, 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 blah. And you see the way he's hitting the bags and he's dancing and he said he wants to go meet Madonna and Cindy Crawford. And he had his big billboard at in Times Square, which is definitely a big thing. And um, then the whole then the whole sh- theatric star, right? You see how men behind the, her- uh, behind the curtain dancing, dancing. I think he was there a little bit longer than he intended to be. I think there was some kind of malfunction that made him dance a little bit longer than he wanted. But regardless, it got under Kevin Kelly's skin. At one point, you see Kevin Kelly get up there because he's always pissed off. He's just like, come on, get your ass down to the ring. He's yelling and he's like storming around. Phil Borgia, his trainer, actually takes out the pads and like has Kelly try to calm down, like relax, man, work them. Because Hamed is just doing his thing, right? Finally, the, you know, the, the curtains open up and then you hear um, Red Rat, which was like a really good, you know, rap reggae artist in the early 90s. and Hamed starts coming out to that, you know what I mean? Dancing, still being obnoxious. You just see the way he's moving. You want to see him get knocked out. If you're not a fan of that type of stuff, he has the perfect look that you just want to see him get, you know, stomped out. Yeah, he's goofy looking. So you're just like, oh, here's this goofy looking guy he's cool. His his facial reactions, the way he's like, you know, dancing. He had his brother next to him that was like a twin copy of him with the glasses and everything too. And then when he finally gets into the ring, right, he flips over the ropes. And the first things he does is skip over to Kelly and start talk shit, talking to him in his face again. <laughs> and Kelly and Kelly is going over, going right with him. And, and you know, when I think Al Galvin, Al, um, the late Al Gavin pulled him away. And um, great cut, man. Great, great cut, man. And then um, while Hamed's being introduced, and I thought this part was awesome, too. Michael Buffer saying his name, Prince Nassim Hamed. Ahmed has his hands up. He's right in Kelly's face. And yeah. <laughs> like, I loved Ahmed, man. I'm a, I was like, I was a kid when was he was out fight, there. Dude. Nobody and it was, he was fun to watch when I was young. He made for exciting fights. Yeah, well, and nobody the, ever talks about that fight. That fight's a fucking fun fight, dude. That, that's one of the best fights you would find, man. Absolutely. That whole card in general, dude, is one of the best HBO cards ever. Like, you had that one, then you had the fun-ass Kennedy McKinney Jr. Jones fight before that, which... Honestly, if Hamed Kelly didn't happen, that fight on itself would have made it for a really memorable night. Yeah, but, and probably could have headlined all right, yeah. Totally. But instead, you got Hamed Kelly that just 
you know, the knockdowns involved and the dramatics involved and everything. And Hamed finally finishing it with one punch. Like you can't beat that man. And the the knockdown where his like his, like his arms like underneath him and shit. Yeah. It's like, totally. And that was the reaction Hamed was getting from guys, man. And to be honest, Hamed was already a little past it at that point. He was still young, but he wasn't taking his career seriously. Like he used to. And a lot of people that was along the UKC will, the UK scene will tell you that, you know, his, his prime kind of ended after he beat Steve Robinson. After that, he stopped really giving a shit like that. Yeah, he'd had he'd had uh, training and and like you know et cetera behind the scene issues for yeah, a number totally. of years. Yeah, he was a damn good trash talker though, for sure. And I mean, I even in he, the ring, man, he was like running around, running his mouth and doing like watch his fight with um Jose Bonilla, I think it is, and um. Was it one of those guys? I think whatever, but I think that was the name. Anyways, during that fight, totally just—he's dancing around, he's clapping his hands, he's going through it. He's like, he's like in a rave and listening to techno music while he's beating Benia's ass. You can't do a single thing with him. <laughs> one of the things he used to do is like he'd uh, he'd be moving his head and shit, and like he'd yeah. like slip a jab and then he'd go like like that with his yeah, yeah, little fucking yeah, shimmy totally. and shit they just his opponents would look at him like what the fuck dude but yeah he was yeah, he's he one of the hardest punching featherweights in history if not the hardest definitely a fucking uh top level trash talker for sure yeah and i mean if he was around today like who's the top featherweights out there like i mean i'm trying to, well i'm trying to think of somebody who would like match up well with him but like his style is so funky mm-hmm. that like who's gonna what kind of st- well i mean i guess basically that kind of well fulton like stephen fulton is a featherweight right is he or no i think so he is right well like i guess the way that the way that barrera did him the way that like you know at that i mean here's the thing i'm gonna say this too like i the barrera fought him perfectly and put on a clinic in that fight. Bahamut, that wasn't Bahamut that, like, he, clearly you can see he had seen better days at that point because of, like we just mentioned, not to diminish anything from what Barrera did. He probably would have done that any other time if he fought that discipline. But, like, that clearly wasn't the same dude that you had seen on Showtime only a few years earlier or that first came on the scene, you know what I mean? Yeah, no question. Well, like that, <clears throat> that kind of style, that straight lace style that Barrera used probably would work pretty well against him. But against like, you know, like somebody like Emmanuel Navarrete or somebody like that, you know. Oh, man, nah, I'm going to No, that's bad news. Totally. He would have exploited people like that. It would have been a good fight. It would have been a fun fight. But like, Ahmed would just want to also just, you know. And you, you can't diminish that power, dude. Like he was concussive. When he was hitting guys, he was making these guys straight up cry. Look at um, Billy Hardy's face after he gets dropped. And you just see a mat, like his pain, it looks like someone took a bat to him. He just, his eyes squeezed up his mouth. He's, it's pain. That's one punch. That happened within seconds. You know, like he was just icing dudes left and right. Yeah, dude, they're like our, our uh, Augie, Augie Sanchez. Augie Sanchez, man. Poor Augie Sanchez doing yeah, that. Yeah, man, he got brutalized that night, unfortunately. And that was kind of how Med that started that because... Uh, you know Sanchez I guess they found out was kind of concussion prone they they diagnosed him with or like knockout prone um, well and yeah a couple times when he got like laid out he got laid out well immediately after the the Hamed fight he came back he knocked out Luis Cito Espinosa but then he fought John Michael Johnson another heart puncher 
And dude, that's another brutal, brutal. He was unconscious completely, just laid there, couldn't move, looked like he was dead fish. And yeah, like, it was like he was fine until he wasn't. And then he was just like obliterated. Yeah, totally. So, well, I don't, I don't have any more trash talkers, but I did find something that I thought was super interesting because I did not know this before. I figured you probably wouldn't know it before, and a lot of listeners or viewers, whichever, would not know this before. So, excuse me, usually when we do the history episodes, before we get out of here, usually when we do the history episodes, I start talking about like, you know, the ancient history or something like that, just because I like to and it's fun. But I did find a little something about Tex Rickard. So Tex Rickard, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, I think his first name was George. In any case, uh, Tex Rickard came to be extremely famous in the 1920s for being a promoter. But before that, many years before that, Tex Rickard semi-famously, as far as his kind of backstory goes, cut yep. his teeth in the Yukon Territory, which is uh, just adjacent to Alaska now. But at the time, it would have basically just all been one big mass. And it was somewhere where a gold rush happened in the late 1800s. And so a lot of people who were looking to make money fast or whatever prospectors headed up to the Yukon Territory Tex Rickard was one of them. Uh, in any case, Tex Rickard uh, famously lost a saloon that he had bought playing cards, playing poker, or somehow gambling. He lost his saloon, and he wound up, after losing saloon, working at another saloon. The dude who ran and owned that saloon, I'm sorry, it was somebody I'm not super familiar with, so let me pull this up here so I can not fuck it up. Um, Wilson Misner. So this dude, Wilson Misner, ran this other saloon where uh, Tex Rickard had worked, I guess. And so uh, what wound up happening was that Tex Rickard kind of looked to this guy who was a businessman and wound up being kind of like a part-time fight promoter and looked to this guy to kind of learn some of his trade. So it wa actually wound up coming to... Um, Frank Slavin is a somewhat recognizable name to some people. Frank Slavin yeah. was a guy who uh, was an Australian heavyweight in the late in the late 1800s, and perhaps best known for being a an arch nemesis of Peter Jackson, the Black Prince. They really didn't like each other, and actually got into a few like barroom brawls, according to some reports. And in any case, this guy Frank Slavin uh, fought his assistant so what briefly i know that i don't want to get into too many side stories here but just to explain because things were so different at this time often fighters would travel around and do shows they would like host exhibitions or something like that wherever whether it was like in an opera house sometimes a saloon whatever the case may be to get a little bit of extra money and in this case this dude slavin fought his assistant or a guy that he used to go around and spar with sometimes and uh, also himself was a promoter named Joe Boyle. So long story short, this is one of the first instances I can find where Tex Rickard and this other dude, whose name, of course, I already can't remember, Wilson Misner, uh, got together and encouraged Frank Slavin and Joe Boyle to trash talk each other publicly and to the press in order to hype up this fight. 
and I couldn't find any other earlier instance of this happening, although I'm sure it did happen. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying I couldn't find any. Mm -hmm. So I found it really interesting that somebody like Tex Rickard, who decades later would pioneer things like building a brand new stadium out in the middle of a fucking field in New Jersey in order to, to host the first million dollar gate in 1921 between Dempsey and Carpentier. I mean, you know, already a couple decades before that, he was kind of doing some revolutionary shit with the trash talk stuff. So I thought that that was a pretty good little anecdote that I found. That's pretty awesome, yeah. Yeah, I I had definitely not heard of that. And um, yeah, pretty cool shit. Tex Rickard, legendary promoter, and apparently legendary trash talk proprietor. (laughs) Yeah, man. Man of many trades. (laughs) good shit indeed for sure well dude i mean that's we went through like we actually stuffed a whole lot of trash talkers into into that a lot of ones that people wouldn't really think of either yeah a few good ones yeah i think we we got the obvious ones but we also got some ones that were surprising so absolutely i appreciate it dude some good shit man yeah man this was awesome as always guys everybody thank you so much for listening in or watching whichever the case may be if you listened in to this episode please go ahead and subscribe whatever podcast app you might listen in. Give us a little comment or rating. Helpful. If you listened or watched on YouTube, also subscribe there. Give us a reply, question. Always happy to answer them. Thanks so much. Uh, If you are on social media, Knuckles and Gloves is on both Facebook and Instagram. We kind of hang out on Twitter probably more often than not. And my buddy Eris is there on Twitter as Punch Zone Eris. Me, Patrick Connor, I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. Eris, thanks, bro. We'll talk soon. Always a pleasure, man. Enjoy. Later, everyone. Right. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.